0: Hey, everybody. It is time once again for the monthly Roto Talks Through podcast. And folks, you've sent in the questions. I am ready to answer them. But as always, we need more questions. So by all means, send them to the email address questions at rotto.com so we can have another episode next month. Now. I'm about to embark. It was a kind of a shorter list. I think it's going to be a shorter one than normal. That's okay. Sometimes long ones, sometimes short ones are fine. And as always, it's going to be starting with game and show-related questions. Then Jen will come in. I think she had one game-related question this month. And then we'll move over to the personal stuff. And uh, you know the drill, folks. This probably isn't your first rodeo. So hang on, and we'll get going right after this. Okay, everybody, let's get going. We've got the questions. I've got the answers, I think. We will see. Starting with Olivier, who says, I've got my hopes up. You've mentioned Plunderous at least twice in the last week. I think it was in a ramble and in the weekly recap. Do you know if the game is ready to re-enter crowdfunding in the next few months? And are you still involved in the co-op design? I am definitely still involved in the design of this game, as I have been now helping out my very close friend for, oh geez, the last three or four maybe even five years now, I've been giving him all kinds of feedback. I've played it now probably at least a dozen times on Tabletopia, and I think it's amazing. You know, a forex game for people who don't like 4X. And uh, yeah, uh, it is perpetually just a few months away from re-entering crowdfunding. I, the, the biggest hurdle that he has is uh, he is relying on a friend, a very talented graphic designer friend, to do all of the graphic design, and his friend has a life. And, you know, it's interesting, uh, I think a couple of months ago, he actually tried to bring on you know another graphic designer to help out or maybe pick up the slack or whatever. But it turns out his graphic designer friend was working in such a weird way that the new graphic designer couldn't make hide or tails of the file formats and stuff like that. So... That is still continuing to be the holdup, and uh, my friend Andrew is still hoping to get the game, you know, onto Kickstarter. Or yeah, I think he would go Kickstarter again before the end of the year. But yeah, it's still in limbo. The game has definitely evolved a lot over the last couple of years. A lot, a lot. Um, and one of those evolutions is he has put the co-op module that I was, you know, kind of co-designing on the back burner so that he could, you know, put all his focus on making sure it's a really great competitive game and also has a really solid solo mode. So, you know solo mode is going to be using the same kind of element that the co-op mode was based on, but it's going to be a little bit more stripped down and just be kind of like a streamlined, hey, look, just recreate the multiplayer experience with this solo mode, and if it is successful, it'll get a uh, co-op mode somewhere down the road. He's also, not for nothing, designed a whole expansion worth of content, too. I don't know if that's going to be something that it will be part of the crowdfunding campaign, um, but it's really, really cool, too. He's even gotten some... original original. original art from the Miko for it. But yeah, I mean, again, I think all his focus is just on making sure the core game is ready to go. And he's such a perfectionist, he just will not do it until he's got all the finalized, updated graphic design art. He actually showed it to some of our mutual uh, acquaintances in the board game publishing industry and got feedback from them as well. And that led to a lot of, you should really change this, 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 and this in terms of the look, which means once again the game is going to be undergoing a big graphic design overhaul with uh, the uh, the feedback we've gotten from various publishers who really know their stuff so Maybe, maybe. But honestly, at this point, if I were a betting man, I wouldn't hold your breath and assume maybe we'll see it. Here's the problem. I was going to say, maybe we'll see it in early 2024. But the problem there is, Jen and I are still going to be on the road in early 2024. And I know he will. I I did a a free run-through preview for him when he put it up last time. And I know he'd want to do it again, uh, so he might end up waiting until Jen and I get back, which means it might not go on crowdfunding until April of next year. Now, like I said, he is, you know. Uh, You know He's a full-time dad. He's got a lot of stuff going on, but he is definitely trying to make this thing happen. But uh, honestly, I wouldn't expect to see it until sometime in early 2024, if I were a betting man. Okay, next up, Daniel says, a while ago, you mentioned your friend, the same friend, was doing a Gloomhaven Roll and write. What's the latest update on the game, please? Well, um... It has been definitely put on the shelf until Plunderous can be done. Although, man, before that happened, it changed. I, I got so excited about it because he shifted it from a high fantasy Gloomhaven setting to a um, a futuristic sci-fi adventure Star Trek style setting, which makes me personally so much more excited about it. Uh, because and, and he did this because he knows I love Star Wars uh, or not Star Wars, Star Trek. So so much, and so you know, we did a lot of back and forth on that too. And man, there are some amazing, innovative ideas in there, unlike anything the industry has ever seen before. And uh, but, like I said, one thing at a time. He's really got to get Plunderous done and dusted. Uh, so you know that that uh Gloomhaven Roll and right turned into a sci-fi game that is just just so awesome. He actually had me send me. Or send him my copy of, what was it, Unsettled from Orange Nebula, because he knew what a big fan I was of that and he wanted to see, right, how was this hard sci fi brought into a game? So he's taking inspiration from that. He's taking inspiration from Gloomhaven. He's making it a roller. I mean, and I honestly. There are some elements of this design that are so forward-thinking, I don't want to actually say them out loud because I know it's going to be a while before this comes to fruition, and I don't want anybody else to take those ideas. So unfortunately, that one is even farther off. I'm sorry, Daniel, but I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm excited for it too. Uh, let's see, then we've got Joseph who says, I wanted to ask you your thoughts about Automa systems, systems that either allow for solo play or for a richer experience at lower player counts. What are your top three Automa systems, is Joseph's a question. I, you know, I don't know that I have a top three because honestly, I am not a solo gamer. For me, my favorite thing about solo gaming is it makes it so much more fun for me to film Roto Runs-Throughs. Because when I film a solo run through, and I only ever choose to do a solo run through of a game when I feel that the solo mode really captures the feel of the multiplayer game, which is to say, it has usually a really good automa uh, that is nice and simple and streamlined, doesn't slow the game down, uh, but still gives you a sense for what it feels like to compete against somebody else. So that my video does uh, double duty. It's good for solo fans to see what the game is like, but a multiplayer fan still get a good sense for what the kind of choices and Challenges they'll be faced with, um, and you know, I, 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 But again, I don't go out of my way to. I play board games, not solo. I play with my wife Jen. If Jen weren't here, I would not be playing solo board games. I'd probably be catching up on my YouTube queue or trying to read more. Quite frankly, so what I will say, I won't name you know three specific systems or three specific games, but I will say what I like to see as a general rule. Um, You know, a good autonomous system for my taste, anyway... Well, really, there are two broad approaches to how you could do an Automa. And to me, they're typified by the approach of the Automa factory, or Morton Modrad-Peterson specifically, or the approach favored usually by Dave Turchi, another design superstar who does a lot of solo modes. And Morton and Automa, they always try to, with as simple and streamlined a system as possible, usually just you know, a couple of cards that you read from, that combine to create interesting things. Uh, you know, they emulate the end result of what another human player would do: grabbing resources, blocking my uh, paths to victory, uh, you know, creating opportunities for me. Whatever it might be, the the more simple and streamlined a system, as far as I'm concerned, the better. Dave Turchie tends on the opposite to go for big, complex things that don't only emulate the outcome of another human player, but emulate the thought process of another player, that emulate all the individual little steps. And to me... I, I appreciate why they are very popular and why Dave is celebrated for his uh, solo designs, but I would rather—and um, again, this is mostly because I'm really only playing these things when I'm doing solo run-throughs—the simpler and cleaner and more elegant, the better. What I think is very important, then, when, you ha- when, uh, when you're developing a nice, simple, streamlined, elegant Automa system is that it's capable of— Achieving the output of a human player. Not the actual moves of a human player, but just the output of a human player. And it has to have some degree of predictability. Like, you know, the best example I can think of, I know this has been done several times, hey, the cards are two-sided, and one side of the card gives you... I mean, when you're when you're making your turn, and you can see, oh, I can see half. I can see one of the two cards that the Automa is going to use to make their decisions for what they're going to do on their turn. So I could take an educated guess that, well, it's likely they're going to focus on this element over here. I can't guarantee it, because I haven't seen the other cards. I haven't seen the other half of what they're going to do. But I could make an educated guess and bend my decisions towards that. That's what you do in a good multiplayer game, a multiplayer game where I do pay attention to what Jen is up to and where she might go and where I think I can push my luck and, and wait on something because I can focus on other things. I want to have that same... Interaction, that same predict or quasi somewhat predictability. So that's really important. And again, automa systems, a do, uh, factory does this really well, and so does Dave Turchi. But I'd rather have it done in a simpler, more elegant, clean solution. Also, strictly speaking, I'd like a system that feels like I'm literally beating somebody else that I can see over the course of the game. You know how their score is accumulating, and uh, it's a satisfying win. You know, as opposed to beat my own high score. So really, what are my top three? The three um, Automa systems that do those three things in combination the best would be my top three. I don't know what those are, though, because I really don't catalog it. However... Uh, for folks who don't know but are interested, apparently like Joseph. Joseph, I don't know if you know, I recently started uh, keeping track of every single solo run-through that appears on the channel, You know, going all the way back to the beginning. Uh, you can find it at solo.rotto.com. It's a geekless on board game geek And um, subscribe to that so you'll always know when I'm putting new solo run-throughs up. Either that I did or came really good or r- well or whatever. Anyway, though. Yeah. Question two, would you prefer to have the Automa system that's easy to manage and replicates player interaction poorly, or a difficult Automa to manage that replicates uh, player interaction perfectly? So that's a continuation. Obviously, I said I'd rather have a simple, easy-to-run Automa rather than a super complex one. But then you've added those extra caveats. Okay, do you want the simple one that doesn't really do that good a job of replicating... The human, the feel of a human opponent or interaction with a human opponent. And honestly, yes, I would still rather have that. You know, again, I mean, the, what was it? You know, the, the, the pyramid the, the pyramid from Teotihuacan that Dave Turchie did was brilliant. It was really clever, and it's a fun little puzzle in its own right, but Teotihuacan already has enough for me to keep track of without having to, you know, manhandle all these extra elements into my brain. Was it Teotihuacan he did that, or was it Tekenu? I don't remember. Either way. Um, and yes, while I appreciate that a big complex thing does a better job of one of my core pillars that I want from an automa player that sense that I do have a real opponent who I can predict. If I had to give up that prediction, if you know, I just mentioned the three things, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, simplicity and and clean elegant implementation. You know that sense of interaction and predictability. That's less the interaction, more the predictability, and um, you know beating something as opposed to beating a a high score chart on a you know classic arcade game. To me, those are the big three things. Really, what you're asking: How do I rank those? And honestly, I rank ease of play higher than the other two. If I were to rank those three things, which I think would answer your question, ease of play would be number one. And number two, I think, would be the interaction, the predictability of another opponent. And honestly, if I could have both of those, I don't mind if the opponent never actually scores any points. I'm okay with... Uh, You know, just trying to beat a high score, saying, oh, yeah, I got 87 points. Oh, that means I got a mid-score, or or I failed, or whatever. I'm okay with that. It's not my favorite. But I would happily sacrifice that to get the other two. And if you're talking about the two and I have to sacrifice one or the other, the clean, elegant simplicity, or that sense of predictive interaction, I will give up the interaction to keep the clean. Um, and truly feel like I'm all alone in the simulation. That's how I would that, you know, that's how I would prioritize those things. Question three, which of my t- top 10 personal games would I like to see with an automa system? Good question. Let's uh, go to the browser because I don't remember what my top 10 games are. What is that? How do you get to that? You go to um, games.rado.com right games.rado.com. Okay, uh, games.rotto.com, There we go. Oh, because I left out the A. That's why Google didn't find it. It's opening. Here we go. All right, so my top 10 games of all time today are Dominion, Keyflower, Peleponies, Nations, Twa, Agricola, Gloomhaven, Castles of Burgundy, Shadowrun Crossfire, and Pandemic. Okay, and so the question was, which of these would I... Right, which... Okay, you you didn't say, so I'm assuming you're saying... okay. Well first of all, uh, Shadowrun Crossfire, I, uh, well you know, Shadowrun Crossfire and Pandemic are both cooperative games, right? So any cooperative game, you can play solo if you want. Huh. But boy, I would really like a version of Shadowrun Crossfire where I don't have to play two-handed. But, I mean, that it doesn't require a full Automa for that. Neither Pandemic... You know, actually, Pandemic does have... One of the expansions introduced a very, very cool system that basically did a quasi-solo. It was like, hey, the CDC is an extra resource you can leverage, and you can turn Pandemic into a true solo game that way. So I don't need Pandemic... And while I'd really love Shadowrun Crossfire, it wouldn't be for an auto. I wouldn't want an honor. I wouldn't want a teammate. I would just want things you know, tweaked a bit so that I could feel like I have got a shot at playing just pure solo, which means I'd have to lose the abort system and all that, but that would be okay. So it's really the competitive games in my top 10 that I would most want. Uh, let's see. Agricola, I don't feel like I need that. Agricola already has a... Uh, you know, solo mode built in. I don't feel like if I were... I'm trying to imagine if I wanted to sit down and play one of these games solo, Would I, w- which one would I most want to be... I guess that's actually a good question. Which of my top 10 would I most want to be able to play solo? Hmm. I probably... Honestly, of my top 10... Oops, I missed one of my top 10. Dominion. No, Dominion. Yeah. I would probably want to be able... Dominion, honestly, I don't think needs an automa again, Dominion, I think would be perfectly fine saying, "Hey, you know what? you have to get X number of provinces and x number of turns to do a win, and I'd be satisfied with that, and, you know, turning it more into a puzzle, right? Nations is the one that really jumps out at me that if i want if I, if in my personal top ten, if I were to play anything, which one would I want to play as a solo game, I think it would be nations because nations of all of these games. Yeah, I, I'm gonna say it's tied with Agricola is has the I think the most interesting and engaging story you know obviously telling you know the, the evolution of mankind throughout centuries of development. and there's enough really interesting interaction directly between players because of the military track and whatnot that I think nations would benefit most, I think. Oh, Gloomhaven is in my top 10, too, and I'll leave the same thing out. Gloomhaven has like a dozen different true solo missions that have already been designed. I wish Isaac would design more, but that's okay. I I don't think, you know... But you know what? Honestly, honestly, I kind of do come back to Shadowrun Crossfire. I think that would be the one I'd want next most, uh, because I again I'd be very very happy if Shadow on Crossfire could just get some tweaks to the existing system, so that you know by I don't know just giving you a little bit more starting resources or whatever it might be, so that it could be a viable game to play truly with only one hero. But I would be bummed. By losing, what's so much of what makes Shadow on Crossfire to me is that notion of, hey, it's you and me working together, and if you go down, I've got to save both of us. If I go down, you've got to save both of us. I, can't, I kind of, more I think about it, I would like an Automa. I would like... Kind of along the lines of what Oathsworn does, I haven't played Oathsworn yet, I'm hoping to before the end of the year, because when we drive through Los Angeles, I am swinging by Shay's place, and I am grabbing Oathsworn from him, and Jen and I will play it south of the border in Mexico. But I really love that Oathsworn says, hey, it's supposed to be a four-hero game, and if you're going to play two players, each player controls a hero, but then they have sidekicks that are very simplified, streamlined, automated players. I would love to see something like that brought into Shadowrun Crossfire. An automated player... Honestly, an automated player that kind of makes decisions on its own. And I don't just get to tell it what to do. And, you know, so, hey, I've got my big thing. I do my, all my normal stuff. And then my automated teammate who has their own bad guys that are hitting him will do some automated choices. And I can kind of guess what they're going to do. But sometimes they'll fight. Sometimes they'll heal. Whatever. I mean, they don't even need a deck. They just need a die to roll against the probability chart and some simple things. Because I really like that idea of being in Shadowrun Crossfires with somebody, and if they go down, I've got to save them. And if I go down, they've got to save me. And I would assume at that point, if I went down and they've got to save me, that I'd be able to like get into the into control of them and have like a slightly more robust... Or no, actually, it wouldn't even need to be that. I could see it... Okay, if... Yeah. That, this, I'm really liking this idea the more I think about it. There's an automated sidekick character... And if they go down, you know, and they make choices, and I can kind of think what they're going to do, and maybe I can exert some influence and force them to do certain things at certain points, but they are their own quasi-unpredictable thing, kind of like, you know, the pets in dungeon pets. And if they go down, I've got to survive that one more round, taking on everything they've got. If I go down, they've got to survive one more, but when I go down, they've got a special, like, overtime mode that gives them a little bit extra so they can survive that last turn so we could still get a quasi-aborted win. The more I talk about it, the more I would love to see that. So I'm going to say of my top 10, Nations and Shadowrun Crossfire, the two I would most like to see given a really interesting Automa system. Okay, then number four. I noticed in the last several months, maybe a year, uh, you've returned to including extended videos in your run-throughs. I remember a time when you stopped doing this entirely. I'm curious what brought you uh, to make these videos again. For the record, I think they're great. Um, Well, here's the thing. I stopped doing them because uh, I s- changed the way that I film. The reason I started doing um, run throughs because and- if you go back way into the early days, um, you know when I, you know like my first couple of years, maybe in just my first year of filming, I was just doing everything in just one unbroken stream. And when I realized, oh, I could do this in multiple parts. And that means when my brain is about to melt down and explode, and I'm having a really, really struggling to keep on making more and more turns, I can say, hey folks, why don't you go on ahead and go to the extended playthrough right now? And it could give me a break and I could walk away or if I could look up something in the rule book, and then that's where I would put these breaks in. And um, when I started filming the way I do now, With OBS and whatnot, and I've got a keyboard and and webcams, I can pause. If you're looking closely at any run through I do now, if you look at the little picture-in-picture of me in the corner, you will notice that. Even though I try to make it look seamless, if you're listening, you probably wouldn't notice. It just seems like, oh yeah, he just did one unbroken playthrough. But if you look, you'll see jump cuts where you know if I'm stuck or I'm not quite sure what to do or I need to look something up in the rule books or I just need a break or there's somebody at the door or whatever it might be, I'll hit the pause button. I will remember... What, would, what sentence did I just say? Sometimes if I know I'm going to step away for a bit, I'll even write it down so I don't forget. And then when I come back,, um, you know, I also make sure that when I unpause, or when I pause, I bring my hands off the screen, so there's nothing moving on screen. so that when I unpause, I just continue the conversation, unbroken. And because I remember what sentence I I was just saying when I left off, even if I had to write it down, and then my hands come back on screen so you don't see them jump around. You'll only see the jump cut if you look at the little picture-in-picture. And I realized, oh, now that I'm doing this, I don't need to give myself the break. I can give myself a break whenever I want. And it just seemed kind of superfluous, especially because if you go back and look throughout history, the extended run-throughs, they only get a tiny, 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 super tiny fraction of viewers. It's like, I've I, like, of people who watch the actual run through actually stick around for the extended. It's not very much, and that's never really changed. You know, maybe sometimes 30% of people will go to the extended if I really make them look, you got to, you haven't, you only, there's like a big thing that'll happen in the extended. Maybe they'll stick around, but very, very few people do. But I mean, to be fair, very, very few people stick past the first 10 minutes. They just watch long enough to see maybe one round or even just one turn. So they see, oh, okay, I see what it's like. Okay, fine. I'm going to go to the final thoughts now or whatever. And the vast majority of people, very, very few people make it to the end, right? Like 50% of viewers make it to like five minutes uh, you know, of a run through, even if, whether it's an hour-long run through. And a tiny fraction make it to the end. And that same tiny fraction are the ones who will watch the extended. And I'm like, okay, nobody's watching these anyway. I don't need to do them anymore so why do it? Um, and the thing is, for probably about a year, I stopped doing it, and people kept saying, could you please bring them back? We miss them so much. And I'm like, okay, I'll bring them back. It's, it's a little bit more work, because I've got three videos I've got to juggle instead of two, and it's really more work for Paulo, because he's got to you know, set up all the cross-links between them and stuff like that. But people just really wanted them back. I mean, obviously, you wanted them back. You were happy to see them back. But now here's the trick you're not really getting that much more. When I stopped doing them in their entirety, what happened is the one run-through plus final thoughts just ended up being bigger. It, you know, it used to be, oh yeah, the, the run-through was like 30 minutes. And then, oh, and then I would do 40 minutes of an extended, right, or 30 and 30, or 25 and 35, or whatever. And then when I stopped breaking them into separate ones, hey, you'll notice more and more and more, oh, most of my run-throughs are 50 minutes, or 60 minutes, or 70 minutes. I was like, okay, you're getting just as much as you ever did. I'm just not doing the extra steps of breaking them into multiple things. But people kept asking for them. And it occurred to me, I was making things a bit worse for the channel. Because if somebody's saying, right, I would like to know about Sagrada. I would like, And I do a search on YouTube for Sagrada gameplay. And they see my video, and they see other videos, and they see my video, and if it's like in this new mode I was in where, oh, yeah, my Sagrada video is 70 minutes long, and meanwhile, somebody else is like 20 minutes long, they're probably going to go watch the 20 minute. Whereas me, if I say, oh, you know what? Hey, I've got my run-through, and I've got my extended, I think that makes it more attractive. Because remember, the majority of people aren't going to make it past five minutes anyway. And if they see a 60-minute long video, they're going to think, oh, I'll have to watch too long. So, it was just it seemed like the right thing to do. People were asking for it back even if they didn't need it because they were getting just as much content as ever, but it cur- that prompted me to think, "Oh, I'm making my videos less attractive by not having the 20-minute option or the 30-minute option that then goes into the additional 40 minutes." So that's kind of how things evolved in one direction and then pivoted back to the original direction. And why? it's not necessary at all because the original purpose of them is long gone because of the way I film these days. But that's kind of the story. Okay.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDSE. Next up, Jack says, Did you get approached to cover Flock Together? Its theme seems right up Jen's alley, cooperatively playing as chickens to defend a farm. It does have minor role to resolve, but the theme as well is a, has a cool aging mechanism. You start as chicks and level up to full-grown chickens by the end. Uh, Might be enough to win you over. Thoughts? First impressions? Reason you didn't cover it? Jen's impressions of the game? I... We were contacted by the publisher, and I did read the rules, and I passed. I am curious, because we ended up not covering it. What did anybody else? I am going to look at the secret behind-the-scenes spreadsheet where we keep track, because here's what happens. Um, I have a channel manager now. Uh, Folks, I've had him for a few years, ever since we moved back to the States. And... uh, Whenever a publisher contacts me, I just say, hey, here, contact my channel manager. And then they contact the channel manager. Channel manager uh, gets the rules, sends it out to everybody, collates everybody, you know, sometimes chases people down. It is tough getting Amy and Maggie to commit to stuff because... They've got day jobs, um, you know, and stuff like that. And eventually figures out, right, who would be interested in doing it, you know, puts together a package to tell the publisher, here are your options for coverage of this crowdfunding Kickstarter game or what have you. Um, but in the meantime, he keeps track of all this on a Google sheet that I am not showing on screen right now because there's secret proprietary stuff in there. But let's see, what was the name of it again? It was Flock, right? F-L-O-C-K. Flock together. righty. I said no, Shay said no, Ruel said yes, and Kimberly said yes. So, um, you know, that's what Andrew, um, who by the way is the same designer as Pl- uh, the designer of Plunders and, you know, a, a friend of mine for not quite a decade now, but he's also my channel manager. Um, anyway, though, so Shay and I passed. Kimberly and Ruel said yes. Amy and Maggie looks like they didn't answer. Um, we've just gotten to the point where, okay, if, if they don't answer, we just assume that's a no. Uh, um, probably one out of every 30 games, they'll say, oh my gosh, yes, that one. But then it's always tough because most publishers don't want to send prototypes to Australia, which is why it's, I mean, you know, even though they do such an amazing job. Uh, but anyway, it doesn't matter. So I do not know why Shay said no. And I'm assuming that the publisher said, you know, what often happens is if I say no, but Shay or Kimberly or Ruel or Amy and Maggie say yes, the publishers will often say no because, oh, we really wanted to have Rotto cover it. Or like, everybody else on the channel costs significantly less. And the video will get just as many views as if I filmed it. Or, you know, like 80%, you know, tw- maybe 10 or 20% fewer views if Shay filmed it rather than me. But still, this happens over and over and over again. That if Robert doesn't want to do it, they, they just say no. So again, I can't say why Shay said no. And um, honestly, I could totally understand why Ruel and Kimberly said yes. Because yeah, it looks great. And a lot of other channels did sign up to sign up. But I'll tell you why, Jack. You nailed it. You nailed it. Rolled it resolve. off. I thought, yeah, there was a lot of really cool ideas and stuff in the game. But, I mean, I appreciated very much that, you know, the combat resolution from the player's perspective is very deterministic. Right, I know exactly what my chicken is capable of doing. I have to have these resources to be able to pump them into my chicken to convert these resources into damage. And if it's enough damage, I defeat the, you know, the... Rampaging ferrets, or whatever it is. And I thought, okay, that's cool. But then I saw that every creature has, after you fought them, win or lose, you got to roll a die and have a bunch of stuff happen. And you're right, it is minor. But the thing you got to understand, Jack, whenever any game comes in, I am looking for any excuse at all to pass on it. And if I see roll to resolve, that's almost always, without exception, instant, right? You know what? I'd be happy to watch Kim really do a video of this, and then maybe kick myself because I should have covered it because it looked cooler than I thought it was. To me, roll to resolve is almost without exception, in very few cases, an instant pass. Just not interested. If it's in a co-op game like this, I'm a little bit more ex- uh, you know uh, you know accepting of it because you know cooperative you know cooperative games are it's not quite so painful to have you know random swings of luck as, hey, if it affects me, it affects everybody because we're all in it together. But there were two things. I was not keen on that. I just saw that and like, oh, everything else is so good. So ask, why'd you put this in? It just didn't need to be here. Um, Even if, like, I mean, and I know, like you said, it's very minor. I, def- I attack the ferrets. I defeat the ferrets. They roll a die. And it's only a one in six chance that if I roll the die and they roll a six, oh, That I don't defeat them and it makes you lose a turn or whatever. You know, so chances are everything's still relatively determined, but I'm just like, ah, you're giving me an easy out. The other thing though, to be fair, I mean Flock Together is a very pandemic-esque. Uh, you know what do you call it? Spinning plates, right? You know, emergency management game. There's problems coming from all sides. You gotta decide on your turn logistically how are you gonna spend your meager time that you've got. And if I recall correctly, Flock Together had an action point system like Pandemic, because there's obviously Pandemic is probably the most one of the most influential games board games of all time, because. N- Eighty percent of all co-op games just ape its core structure. With hey, you get so many action points, things attack you from different. You have big objectives you have to do. You have short-term problems you have to solve, and that's what this game was done, but with awesome art from Andrew Bosley and um, and I mean, I really like those books. You know, because you you mentioned how the chickens grow up and they do that with like little flip books, if I recall correctly, is they or something like that. I thought all that was very neat, but. You only get two action points per turn. And so I'm sitting here thinking, right, okay, I'm reading this rulebook. Am I going to want to cover this? Do I think Jen and I will enjoy this? And I came away pretty confident that while I'm confident that if I played it, my response would be, yeah, this game is lovely, but Jen and I, it was not for us because it's too simple. We need something a bit richer, deeper. Not a fan of the role to resolve. But really what I did is I tried to imagine playing a game of Pandemic, because the game obviously borrows the core structure, where on my turn, I only get to do two actions instead of four. And I could instantly imagine how... Unpleasant that would be. How unsatisfying that would be. How if I were to play a pandemic-inspired game where I only got to do baby turns over and over and over again, where very little happens, um, that I knew, especially I knew Jen would really dislike it, and it'd be a bummer for her. Because you're right, she would totally love the co- the cute art and the focus on you know brave heroic chickens and all that. But yeah. It was those two things. Roll to resolve primed me to say no. And then when I figured out, oh, what would would pandemic feel like if I only got two action points per turn instead of four? So I was always just taking half pandemic turns that I realized... Because I have played other pandemic-inspired games that do that. That don't give you nice, big, meaty, puzzly turns where I'm trying to figure out, right, okay, I've got four action points. I need to get there. How can I get there in time? And reading the rules, there was just nothing... Deeper in the simulation. I mean, you can just instantly teleport wherever you want. Uh, So there's no issues with trying to get around or tough choices of multi-use cards, which is, at the end of the day, pandemic is a multi-use card game. That's why it's so brilliant. And flock together had some neat stuff. But but to me, it struck me as very much a kind of a gateway game for somebody who has as a you know it, it, it struck me as kind of being in the same realm as Forbidden Island. And I just knew I knew we wouldn't enjoy it, and I knew uh, I'm looking for any reason not to play a game because there's just too many to play as it is anyway. Um, you know, plus I hate stealing. Um, you know, the thunder of hey, Ruel and Kimberly, who both wanted to cover this, and they were excited to cover it, so I'd much rather they cover it. And now, like I said, uh, publishers will often say, "Oh, if I can't have Rotto, then we'll move on," and you know that's understandable. I I, I wish I could. Sometimes I just shake them to make them understand that they'll get just as many views and it will help their project just as much to have Kimberly cover it as me because they get almost as many views as I do. And they'd be better off having them covered because they'd be genuinely excited about the game. But anyway, sorry. That's, that's why I passed on Flock Together. And who knows? I could be entirely wrong. And you know, when the game actually does come out, maybe I'll play it somewhere down the road at a convention and I'll say, Oh, you know, sometimes I realize I made a terrible mistake and I passed on something and I just didn't see what really made it special. For flock together, what really made it special was the amazing art and the wonderful theme. And the gameplay itself seemed kind of yeah, it's fine. And I don't think we would enjoy it. So that's why I said no. And that's just kind of a little, hopefully a bit of an insight into how I go about evaluating games. Because I'm very careful. I say no nine times out of 10. Amy and Maggie say no 29 times out of 30. Shay probably says no. Shay, actually, I think for the most part, Shay Shay started out saying yes a lot more. But then Shay ran into a couple games where he said yes, and then he played it and realized, oh, I hate this game. And he found out... There's nothing worse. It's a terrible feeling because what you do and what uh, people will accuse us of doing is, oh, even though we think the game is bad, we'll still go on ahead and review the thing and say it's good because we're all shills for money. And people who say that don't understand. We are so bombarded every month with more games than we could ever cover in a million years. There's simply no reason for us to choose to cover the crappy games because we can instead cover really good games. Why would we do that? We can't keep up with all the good games that are coming in, so why would we waste our time on bad games? And I remember there were, there's been a couple of times where Shay's like, oh, I just don't know what to do. I wish I'd said no. And we had to, well, okay. Then cut your losses, and we will tell the publisher, look, here's why we don't like your game. And here's some feedback if you want, but wh- who would you like us to mail this prototype to? That probably happens to me three or four times a year and Shay has gotten very good. It is now, it's interesting, it has now happened to Kimberly a couple of times too, where, you know, actually just the last month, she had another one where she said, oh my God, I hate this so much. I wish I'd said no. And, you know, and she's gotten to the point where she's comfortable now saying why she doesn't like it and just, hey, we'll send it on to somebody else. And um, has that happened to Ruel yet? I think... No, but that's probably only because, you know, Ruel is the newest and, uh, you know, he's less established. So people are, you know, they'll, if they can't have me, they'll go for Shay. If they can't have Shay, they'll go for Kimberly. If they can't have Kimberly, they'll go for Ruel. And I think that's just a reflection of Ruel is the newest, um, whereas Shay is the most established. And of course, I am the most, most established. So there's a little bit of insight into how things go. Uh, hopefully that was interesting. I don't know. Maybe that was incredibly boring. Anyway, uh, Marius says, I hope you're doing well. You've talked several times that you are going to go for a great six-month tour. Yes, next week, literally a day from today. um, And we are running out of time. I've still got to get Kali here filmed and some other stuff, uh, but we're very excited. The big trip down to Mexico. Would you please share your perspective on how is this trip going to affect the channel? Should we expect less gameplay due to it? Uh, do you plan any changes apart from new videos with great landscapes and Jens and my happy faces? Well, that's a good question. It's an excellent question. And of course, now we're doing this six months. Probably it's going to be more like five months. I just like to round it up to half a year, but it's probably going to be more like five months at the end. But who knows? It might be four. We might we might be three months. We might decide to come home early. But earlier this year, we did about just about two months on the road. And that was kind of like our test bed. And we thought, okay, yeah, this works. Let's try, let's push it. Let's go for six. And uh, you may have noticed, I continued to try wherever possible to put out as much content as I could while we were on. And so, you know, back in February and March of 2023, the videos that went up on the channel from me were filmed on a tiny little dinette in an RV. Uh, And, you and you know, hopefully the quality didn't drop at all uh, you know it's still me still making my same observations still you know, approaching the same way i always have but i will ga- i will tell you doing that on the road made me so miss the room I'm sitting in right now. It is so nice to just set up the game, know that all my cameras are fine, and my microphone is fine, and I can just go. And I don't... I mean, because for years in Malta, I was filming in my living room, and every time I wanted to film something, I had to pretty much take over our living room. And I I mean, I hear this all the time from uh, Kimberly and uh, Shay, because they're both... uh, Ruel, like me has a guest bedroom that has been converted into a studio. So for, well, it's easy. For me, it's easy. But for Shay and uh, Kimberly, it is a nightmare. That's why Shay, I mean, he often tries to schedule like doing three games on one day because it's such a... because he actually has roommates and stuff like that that are inconvenienced by all the cameras and microphones and everything else. So I was reintroduced, reacquainted with that feeling living on the road because... It's a tiny little RV. I can't leave a whole bunch of webcams on little spindly tripods all over the place. And so I have to set up and tear down. And I found that to be incredibly onerous. And I've left myself wondering, how did I put up with this for so many years in Malta? So I'll be honest. I am not looking forward to that. What have I done to try to mitigate it? There's really nothing I can do about the cameras, right? I mean, maybe... I'm gonna try experimenting with maybe I can set up the camera so they can stay all the time. And because, you know, they're on what are they called? Gooseneck, you know, these uh, the kind of things where, you know, oh, it's a it's a thing that clips to a because they're just little, I mean, look, here's one right here. If you're watching instead of listening, you can see this little webcam is my overhead camera, right? It's a very tiny lightweight thing. This can go on the end of a gooseneck line, and I can just kind of muscle it around in position. And I'm thinking, maybe I could set these up so that when I'm done filming, I can just kind of put them up and they just don't bother us. But uh, the tricky thing is, which you can almost see on screen, there's my microphone right there. I'm trying to get the mic as close as I can and the mic would have to be reset up every time. These microphones are very delicate and all of that. But what I did is, a couple of months ago, I bought um, a set of wireless DJI mics as I've seen them appearing on more and more videos for people who like... Record them stuff, walking around and doing stuff with GoPros, and it seemed like these DJI, and they were expensive. Maybe the most expensive piece of equipment I've ever bought for recording. It was like three hundred bucks for these two um, wireless, you know, lapel mics that you can just plug in. I've filmed with them a couple of times. There's good things about them, and there's bad things about them. But my hope was that, hey, if I could just get myself in the RV set up to where, oh, I just just put the use the gooseneck things and the cameras can always stay out and all I got to do is just plug them into a laptop and then I can just use these wireless mics that maybe I could get back to be feeling like, oh, no, I, I, I don't have a bunch of stuff to set up. I can just set up the game and go really quick. If that's the case, I don't expect you'll see really much of any change other than, as you suggested, the background of where I'm filming. But it's a test that I have yet we will find out in a couple of weeks when I'm on the road and I continue, because my intention is to keep on filming. Uh, the problem is, of course, once we get south of the border, it's going to be all but impossible to get new games. I am trying. I keep writing to publishers. Hey, publishers, I am literally going to disappear from the earth for four months at the beginning of December. And if you want me to cover your games, I will you've got to get them to me now. Because what I've heard is you can use like local post offices and whatnot in Mexico to get stuff sent to you, but it's a nightmare. They get snaggled up in customs, or they just never arrive ever, and I just don't think that's going to work. So I'm trying to make sure I've got enough games so that I could film at least a run through a week for the entire half a year that we're gone, right? And then that, plus the stuff from everybody else on the channel, means you really wouldn't notice much of a difference. But uh, it is proving difficult, and I guarantee you, half the people, hey, you know, just right around the time, it'll be too late. They'll say, okay, we're ready to send it to you now, Rado. What's the address? And I'm like, sorry, I'm in Baja now. You can't send it to me, and that'll be too late. I expect I'm going to miss out on covering some big games as a result of that. But honestly, I don't even know what coverage is going to be like, because I have not really put those wireless mics uh, through a a a real stress test yet, especially because it turns out there started to be some problems with them. They wouldn't recharge anymore with their little recharge station. I've actually had to mail them back to DGI, and I'm waiting on them to return so that I could. I I was expecting to do more tests with them before we flew, but then we ran into this problem. So my intention is, from your perspective, nothing is going to change. I can't guarantee that. I'll tell you what I'm most sad about. Uh, Just this week, Alex came over and we filmed two games back-to-back. We did... uh, Oh, I can't think of it now. Um, Escape Room Tycoon and Wondrous Creatures. And here's the deal, folks. I have fallen in love with Alex. It is so, so wonderful. I so enjoy having him come over, having him done all the work to learn the game, play the game a bunch of times, and then we have this stick where he sits down and he literally teaches me the game on camera. we record it. We, there's no setup. I know nothing about the game other than the fact that hey, I probably read the rule book. Six months ago, and said, Yeah, I don't know if I want to do it, but you know what? If Alex wants to do it, I'll do it with him. That's becoming one of my new responses. Honestly, to the previous question from Jack, I probably could have given that response with Flock Together. And if Alex had wanted to do it, although it's interesting, Alex has run into his first, Oh my gosh, I wish I had said no to this because I played it and I should have said no. And so we ended up, so this has now happened to Alex too. Everybody on the channel eventually gets to the point where they realize, Yeah, I can't just say yes to everything because there's always plenty of other things coming that will be good. There's just no time to waste on boring or crappy or weak sauce games. So the problem is, Alex and I said goodbye for half a year because I'm not going to see him until April of next year. But when it comes back, I am hoping, because he lives about an hour from me, it is so much more fun. And I think that fun comes through. I think there's, you know, my run-throughs that I've been doing for a decade are great. Obviously, I love them, so I think they're great because I do them because it's exactly what I want to see. It's what I've trained Shay and Kimberly and everybody else to do because it's what I want to see. And they now do amazing versions of them as well with their own tweaks and touches and flavor and all that. But now that I've started doing these with Alex, I think the the end result is so much better. And I was really, what prompted me to think this was having Amy and Maggie doing run-throughs where it's two people. Still doing all of the articulation of thought processes and strategies, but then also a human being to respond to jokes and 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 make you know inside references and all that, it so elevates. And honestly, when I get back in April, if Alex is up for it, I want him to be in every single video I do, quite frankly, moving forward. Because one, I think the end quality is so much better, and two, it is so much easier for me. Basically, I am paying Alex. Alex, you know whatever type of game it is, he's basically getting like two thirds of the money because I figure he's playing the game, he's learning it, he's teaching me, he's doing the majority of the work, and I'm just taking one third. I think maybe I'm taking a quarter and he's getting three quarters of the. Uh, whether you know if it's a sponsored preview from a publisher or if it's just a retail game that's being covered because it was you know uh, because Patreon backers backed. I mean. Uh, It's the money that comes in through Patreon, which is my number one income source, that pays for the majority of videos. It's just fans of the show who like the show enough and would like to get some exclusives, and they'll hey, I'll give you five bucks a month to get these cool exclusives. That's what actually pays for me and Shay and Kimberly and Ruel and Amy and Maggie, and now Alex, to do the majority of the videos that appear on the channel. And so when I'm doing with Alex, I'm giving most of it to him because he's doing most of the work. And I would be happy to continue doing that. So we'll see what happens when we get back in April. But if we were not going on this big trip, I would like to think that if Alex is up for it, because Alex has a day job too, um, you know. And plus, he's about to be a new—he's already a new dad, and uh, he's about to have his second kid. So I don't know if he's got time to come over and spend more quality time with me. But if he does, I think that's going to be a change you see once I get back. And uh, this trip is just kind of putting the real evolution of the channel on hold. So anyway, there's some insight into what's going on. Okay, next up, we have Jeffrey who says, Pick up and deliver! So I heard that you've recently parted ways with brass, and that Railways of the World is on the chopping block, saying it so. Oh, it's so, Jeffrey. It's so-so. I think you had mechanism. You mentioned your evolving preference for games that limit the mechanism, not mechanic, to either route building or delivering, not both. Yes, uh, this is something that I think I probably talked about most in my run through of uh, Cargo Empire, which was a very weird, quirky game where they got rid of the route building but kept the delivery, and I thought. Wow. And that plus Carnegie, which is a game that had the route building, but not the delivery. And I realized, you know what? I would rather play either of these than Brass. I would rather play either of these than um, Railways of the World. I'd rather play either of them than Mythwind, which is a more recent game that had the, hey, build the the network and then also use the network. Anyway, though, I'm sorry. Continuing with Jeffrey. I wondered... Where does that leave games like Akrotiri, great Heartland Hall & Company, and other older titles where the route building and pick up and deliver is not as overbearing? Um, Well, the thing is, those are games where, I mean, those are are pick up and delivers, both of which made my original top 10 pick up and deliver games that I did with uh, Tom Vassell many, many years ago. They both made the list because, and I didn't realize this at the time, They, you know, a great Heartland hauling company says, look, here's all the routes. They're all on the board. You're just trying to play cards to figure out how best to move around. And Akrotiri... You're building the board, which means you're kind of building the routes as you go, but you're building it less to make the routes and more to actually complete objectives of kind of trying to build a treasure map. And the routes are almost kind of secondary and incidental. So those are both great pick-up-and-deliver games that really worked for me in gen, because again, they weren't... I mean, there is 18xx games... And you know, games inspired by Steam have a very clear overall. Which for a long time, Jen, and I really enjoyed. You know, in Brass and all these, and you know, and the most recent one was Nucleum. Uh, you know, spend a lot, most of your effort trying to build these um, networks and then use them. Use mine, use yours, pay you a premium. However, it does it. It's just like ah, uh, it's good, and I enjoy it. But I've had enough examples where I find, you know what, yeah, it's, it's okay if you put both, but I don't enjoy that as much as breaking down in their component parts. So the ones you mentioned, they're not affected because they were already broken down in their component parts, and I just never done the uh, analysis to determine why did I find them more compelling. Anyway, Jeffrey continues. Can you give other examples of older titles you that may that you may have covered that fit your preferences, but which you've already parted ways with? Airline Europe, maybe Panamax. Panamax didn't stick around because it was a terrible two-player game, quite frankly. Um, you know, I, I didn't. That did I mean, it was a brilliant game, but I mean, they just couldn't even be bothered to try to make it a good two-player game. Airlines Europe, I know I played it a billion years ago, but honestly, I barely remember anything about it. Um, but it's interesting. Both of those, you, you did actually refer to you, you did. So you still want to talk about pickup and deliver as opposed to broadening this to, Hey, just what kind of genres in general have my mind changed about? So what other pickup and delivers? Is there a way that I can go to board game geek? Cause what I want to do is go to gone.rotto.com. Let's go there now. Alrighty. It's opening up. Oh, uh, did I mistype? I must have some weird extension in Chrome because I've noticed my you know faq.rado.com or gone.rado.com or you know all these.rado.coms have started to fail in Chrome. And but they never fail in Edge. They never fail in Firefox. And if I go into incognito mode, they don't fail. So I don't know what it is, Ugh. Let's see. Do I? All right. And then I, I have Jen on her machine. Hey, can you see this URL? And she's in Chrome and it works fine. So, okay. That means I've got to actually go to BoardGameGeek and do this manually. And I've re- I need to systematically start turning off my extensions one after another after another in Chrome to figure out which ones are interfering with my URL redirects. But anyway, let's look at this. So I need to go to... Man, I don't even know how to get to my collection now without my shortcuts. How do I do this? I look at Rotto, and then I look at my profile. Yeah, and then I look at my and I look at my board games. Oh man, this is no wonder I make shortcuts to all this stuff. Alrighty, so then I have to filter and I have to say board games. Don't want to worry about expansions right now. That I don't own. That I previously own, and that'll be my gone list, right? I think that's how I make my gone list. Is that right? And then it thinks about it for a bit, and it's loading this. And right. Yeah. But now here's the problem. I don't have a way to search this list or sort it by mechanisms to just call out the, uh, the pick up and delivers. And how many of them are there here? There are 1,161 games that I have played and gotten rid of. And some portion of them are our pick up and deliver. Okay. So that's not going to work. Alrighty, then tell you what, let's go a different way. Let's just go to uh, YouTube, or not YouTube, to Advanced Search, and then let's uh, say, well, I say owned by me. Let's say, what pick up and deliver games that are owned by me right now, that maybe have changed my attitude about, or that are reflective of my changing and evolving attitude about pick up and deliver? If I can find it, there it is. Pick up and deliver, owned by Rado, advanced search, submit. And right, so as you can see, I haven't gotten rid of railways of the World yet, but like I said, I am so on the edge. Forbidden Desert, that's kind of a stretch to call that pick up and deliver. And I would say the same thing is true for Clank. I mean, yeah, most of these aren't true pick up and deliver games. Pick up and deliver is maybe the most universally mislabeled mechanism on all of Board Game Geek because it's just so sloppily applied to so many games. And wow, I, even, even with that, in inca- I mean, I have very, very few games on this list. There's my great Hallernheim Halling Company and Akrotiri was on here too. And most of these other things that they say are pick up and deliver, I wouldn't actually even I would not qualify them as pick up and deliver because a pick up and deliver means I have to be in the world. I have to be the one to move over to a thing, pick it up, and then move someplace else to deliver it. Otherwise, it's route building or it's something else. And it looks like I've already gotten rid of most of those. And Railways of the World is hanging on. So back to your question, Jeffrey. Can I give other examples of older titles? You'll find them in gone.rotto.com, but I'm afraid I have no good way to pull them out. But hopefully that was at least interesting, uh, some more insight into the way I'm thinking about this stuff. All righty, let's come back to George. says, hi, Rotto. What's your advice on ranking games in general? Is there a certain structure or criteria to use? I'm getting ready to rank my games, and I was thinking of using the app to assist, PubMeeple specifically, but I started thinking about a way I should think about games in general. I mean, I can't compare Isle of Trains to La Ha huh, because it's two different. they're two different weights of difficulty, and yet the fun level is the same. I think an 8 should be the same for a lightweight game as it is for a heavy game. Yeah, I, I completely agree. But then what else should I add to make the difference? I, I like I would rate Arc Nova a 9 just as I would Red Cathedral a 9. So what makes them different when I rank them? Uh, do I have separate lists for types of games? I love Three Sisters. i would rank it a 9.5. But if I put against Kanban EV, it would be a 7. This is why I don't rely on Board Game Geek rankings as much. Too many factors. Sorry, I'm all over the place. I guess this is my brain melting at this point. Uh, George, it's really simple. The only hard thing about this is just st- picking a metric and sticking to it. And fun factor is my preferred metric. I mean, there's a lot of things that go in. I, I try to think of, you know, does Jen like it? If she loves it a lot, that'll, pump, that'll bump it up for me and so on. But there's one really simple way to do it. There is a very, very easy way for What was your example? To rate Isle of Trains versus La Granja. In, um, and it's simple. Uh, imagine, visualize in your mind, holding Isle of Trains, the box, in one hand and La Granja in the other hand. And now imagine you can only keep one of them and the other one you will never get to play again for the rest of your life. And you have to pick one. That's it. That's all you got to do. I guarantee you, you will, after thinking about it and reflecting on it think, oh, but sometimes I'm really in the mood for a nice light thing with all this cool player interaction of Isle of Trains, and sometimes I want a really crunchy thing, and I love the uh, you know, the way dice drafting works in Legrand, huh? And the fact that it has a little bit of, you know, take that, it's just perfect for me in the multi-use cards, but oh, Isle of Trains has the really wonderful you know, aesthetic and charm to it, and blah, blah, blah. And you could go back and forth on this all day long, but at the end of the day, just imagine me standing there in front of you and saying, dude... I don't care. One of these is going to be thrown in the fire and the other one you can keep for the rest of your life. Make a choice which one goes. And you'll have to make a choice. And then once you've done that, you have rated them relative to each other. And then all you gotta do is pick two more games, and sooner or later you will rank Red Cathedral again. Let's let's say you keep Isle of Trains. Let's say you surprise because um, you know, hey, Lagronha is great. But oh, and the important thing about doing this is don't say, oh, you know what? I'll keep Isle of Trains because it's more unique, and I have other games like Lagronha. You have to say, oh, for the rest of my life, I can only own one game: this one or this one. Because that, just cutting away everything else. Now, you can have different reasons that you might say, oh, I'll own this one over this one. But if I can only own one game, it'll be this one or this one. There's your ranking. And then sooner or later, you will have to rank Isle of Trains against Red Cathedral. And then when you pick Red Cathedral or Isle of Trains, you've now got three games ranked. Believe me, I do this with Jen every month in the Jen Jogs because it's murder for her. She, it drives her nuts. Jen Jogs is a, uh, an exclusive show we do for backer patrons of the show where I sit down with Jen and she ranks all the games we played over the preceding month, usually anywhere from 10 to 20 games, on a one to five star scale. And, you know, that's challenging for her, but she can do it. But then the tough part is at the end that everything that she gave a four or a very rare five to, she has to rank them relative to each other. And we just go through this process. Honey, if you could only own one, which one would it be? And she gets through it. And that's what I suggest. And if you do that, you will get it done. And you will often surprise yourself, I guarantee. And if you're like me, you'll have fun doing it, too. Okay, looks like Daniel is back. um, Or I think this is a different Daniel. And uh, co-op gaming with franchise... Co-op gaming, the XXX franchise. I think XXX means this is the 300th podcast where you're talking about this. Daniel, before I continue, might I suggest changing the topic? Have we not talked about Dire Abattoir enough? I guess not. We're about to do it some more. But believe me, Daniel, between you and me, I am starting to get a lot of, could you please, Rado, could you please stop answering Daniel? Because we're sick and tired of hearing the same thing about uh, Dire Abattoir month after month after month. And I apologize, Daniel, that I'm not giving you what you want. At this point, I just don't know what you want, man. I feel like I've answered your question seven ways to Sundays, and here we are on the eighth day. But let's go. I prefaced my question last time with Dire Abattoir isn't an automatic game over, but it leads to the game being close to over, and you must have glazed over that since you treated my question as if I said it was game over. So, here we go again. Smiley face. I appreciate the sense of humor, Daniel. All righty. If, for example, you're playing... So, forget about Dire Abattoir. Forget about Aeon's End. Just, here's a question from a random dude. All righty. Or Danielle. Or you could be anybody. Uh, You're playing a two-player game. Player one's at 5% health. Player two is at 10% health. The thing we're trying to... Put, oh, you put Gravehold in. So we're back to talking about Aeon's End. Gravehold is at 25 you health. Uh, you're, I thought you were going to like try and strip away, but okay, we're still talking about Aeon's End. Uh, um, you're really far away from losing. Okay, Daniel, before I go any farther, remember, um, I just mentioned the last time, if you find yourself in this situation a lot, you're not playing Aeon's in the way it's supposed to be played. Um, you should feel like you're in danger all the time. And I think you and your friends are good enough now that you can go up to whatever the next difficulty level is. Go to it. Whatever you're at now, go to the next difficulty level. But anyway, let's continue. After um, after DA Dire Abattoir and uh, two Unleashes later, because if a player is exhausted, you get two Nemesis Unleash. You're at gloom. You know. Uh, Uh, Gravehold, 25 health Player 1, 5 health Player 2 at 0 health And they've lost 1 breach Right, yeah Because that's what happens Player 2 didn't die They've lost 1 breach And now Gravehold with its 25 health Is going to start bleeding much faster So you went from nowhere close to losing To being really close to losing See, again, we disagree You are not really close to losing Gravehold has 25 health. That's what makes you lose. Player two having zero health doesn't make you lose the game at all. Not even a little bit. You're not even... If, again, and I said this last month, if you're playing, if most of the games you play where Dire Abattoir or something similar does not come up, there's a random variance, that if you and if nobody on your team ever gets uh, KO'd, you need to increase the difficulty level. You're playing a game that, geez, I don't understand why you're not bored with it yet. Why you're not just cruising through it on cruise control. Believe me, Jen and I, we can't play on the beginner level. We can pretty easily and readily beat the game on the... Me- we play on hard difficulty levels because we want a challenge. Daniel, you're ready for the challenge. But even still, g- losing... was this example? You, you just lost 10 health. Uh, what is that? Between you, Gravehold, and the other player, that is 40 health, right? And then you went from 40 health to 30 health. So in one turn, not in one turn, but the card came out, and it was like three more rounds. Three rounds after that, or is it two or three rounds after that, you've lost 25% of your communal health, right? you have still got 75% of your health. You're not about to lose the game. And again, if you feel like you are, then you're looking at it wrong. Now, at the end of the day, I can tell you all day long you're looking at it wrong and there's n- I, I can't make you look at it differently. All I can say is, as I've said in the past, if you feel that that is unfair to lose 25% of your communal health pool at, over the course of three rounds, then... I don't know, is Aeon's in really for you? Because that's not a particularly debilitating blow. It really, really isn't. You're not about to lose. And again, if that's not happening to you, you're playing the game at too low a difficulty level. Anyway, let's continue. So you went from nowhere close to losing to being really close to losing because you're at level three nemesis cards, and those are really tough, and you can lose potentially. Yes, and dire avatar is level three card. When you get to level three, Everything should be hitting you hard and fast. We've talked about this before. That's when the game is in the end game scenario. That's when... What did I talk about last time? I, th- I was trying to come up with different ways to explain this in pop culture references, and I was really keen, and I guess it didn't stick with you, on the Empire Strikes Back, you know, Luke has lost his hand, and all... Everything seems lost. Luke has found out, I am your father, and he's lost his hand, and you know he thinks his friends are dead, and um, he's about to be left for dead by them, and it, it, the situation is, is literally dire and hopeless. And that's incredibly dramatic. There's a reason, and that's one of the reasons that people love Empire Strikes Back so much, and so many people consider it to be the best of the entire franchise, even though it's not. Last Jedi is the best. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, and that's what... This game is trying to engender in you that sense of, whoa, pit of despair. How are we going to overcome this? And then when you do, because the game is designed to allow you to do it, because as I said, it may feel bad, but you still got 75% of your total health pool. So you're really okay and you can still win this. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to give you that roller coaster ride. And if you know what, you know what, some people ride on roller coasters, they say, wow, I really didn't like that. Why did it have to make me f- sick to my stomach? How am I supposed to enjoy this? And you know what? Roller coasters aren't for some people. And Dire Abattoir isn't for some people. And if it's not for you, maybe Aeon's End isn't for you either. Maybe, I don't know. I've never played it with you. But anyway, all right. And that's interesting. You say, okay, we just instantly... Out of nowhere. Again, it's not out of nowhere. The card came up. You had several rounds to deal with it. And now you have many rounds to deal with the after effects of it. It's not out of nowhere. You still have plenty of time. I fundamentally disagree with it. And then you add... uh, You know, where uh, those are really tough... While there was no way of losing before. Why is this game in the game? Because if there's no way of losing a cooperative game why are you playing it? it's not even a game at that point if you have if you and your friends have gotten so good at this game that it's only a cards like this that are the only way the game actually has a chance against you first of all you're playing at the wrong difficulty level and two um you're well you're, you're you're not even playing a game you're just doing an activity you might as well all be sitting around and doing a crossword puzzle or not even a crossword puzzle uh, you know, a jigsaw puzzle. You might as well just be sitting around doing a jigsaw puzzle. You just give it enough time, you will quote win. You can't lose at a jigsaw puzzle. And if you can't lose, except for these cards, well, you've been asking me for months. Why do these cards exist? You just answered your own question, buddy. The game has to put a th- has to put fear into you. You have to feel like you're going to lose. That's why it's there. If you, and then if you respond to that by saying, oh, this feels really bad that I might lose. I don't like this. Then why are you playing the game? It sounds like you want an activity instead of a game. You want something. You should try Outdoor Romantic, right? Um, Because it's designed that you can't lose. Um, Anyway, though, that is the frustrating part. You went from being safe to being close to death. No, it's not the frustrating part. That's the exciting part. Would how would Empire Strikes Back be loudly touted as one of the greatest adventure sci-fi movies of all time if Luke Skywalker just cakewalked through the, the you know, um, Bespin and just showed up and said, oh, Han, Leia, how are you doing? And, and they all say, hey, good to see you, Luke. We weren't really in any danger anyway. Everything was fine. We was never any problem. Let's just leave. Let's just all go and and go on to our next adventure. Would people be interested? No, of course. There has to be the threat of losing. Why does this card exist? So that you feel the threat of losing. But you interpret the threat of losing as, oh, this is frustrating that I might lose. So again, I don't know what to tell you, man. We've been doing this now for half a year. And again, people are really starting to talk saying, can we just please change the subject? So I don't, know, I don't know how to give you what you want other than to say, it seems like the game can't give you what you want. Um, yes, it doesn't in the game, you continue, but it feels really frustrating. If you're frustrated by the potential that you might lose the game, then you don't want to play a game, right? What's the point? What's the point of playing profe- uh, sports? What's the point of playing a game of basketball if you know for a fact that your team will win no matter what? You might as well just sit around, just shooting hoops, and just have a good time. You don't want to play a game if you're frustrated by the fact that the game can push back and make you lose. I don't get it, man. Right. And okay, and then you finish. I still haven't answered. In my opinion, what is the incentive for designers to insert unfair cards into otherwise balanced games? We just talked about that. I've just, I have now given you probably the, the fourth or the fifth or the sixth reason that these cards exist. And at the end of the day, they're not unbalanced. Dire Abattoir, I don't know how many times I can tell you. I don't know how many different examples I can give you from other games, from pop culture, etc., etc., etc. There's nothing wrong with Dire Abattoir. And what you're saying is, if that makes you not enjoy the game, maybe you don't enjoy the game. Maybe it's not Dire Abattoir. Uh, Anyway, uh, PS, an example of a Stage 3 attack card that can lead to a loss depending on the boss. Obliterate. Unleash twice. The player with the most open breaches destroys four cards. The game has to have a chance to win, Daniel. I'm just repeating myself now by saying that you seem to be very frustrated by the fact that the game can potentially hit you and make you lose. It sounds like you don't want to play this game. Anyway, question two, changing the subject. Although it is a continuation of a previous subject. In the feeding your people example, you said, think of it this way. And get points instead of losing points, right? Okay, this is the uh, Agricola thing, right? I would argue that most people don't want to think of it the other way if the game doesn't state it explicitly, nor do they like to change the mechanism of the game. I do not want to fix the game for the designer in order to join it. Well, first of all, I did not advocate changing the game at all. When you sit down to play Agricola and you have the board set up in front of you, you are sitting at basically negative 44 points. I forget, it's something like that. With all the empty spaces that you need to fill to avoid negative points, with all the opportunities to feed your people where if you don't feed them, and you start with tube and you'll get more, every time. every time you recruit a new family member in Agricola, what you're really doing is immediately taking on a negative, I guess, anywhere from what? Uh, f- negative 5 points at the end of the game, although with the ba- we'll put the babies aside, a negative 5 points to negative 30 points every time you recruit a worker. That's what's happening. You can actually see this. I believe there are online Agricola uh, you know, uh, sites where it just keeps a tally of everybody's points. And when you first start playing the game, you're at negative 44. As soon as you recruit another family or birth another family member, you, oh, wow, now I'm at negative 70. That's the reality of the game. And if you find that frustrating, I don't know what to tell you, man. It's, I don't know what to tell anybody who says, because mathematically, there is no different from me going from negative 70 to negative 65. That should be just as, and it's not changing the game. I'm not advocating changing the rules. I am saying, take your, uh, take your victories where you can. Going from negative 7 to negative 65 should be just as satisfying and fulfilling as going from 10 to 15. Mathematically, it's the same. Now, if you don't want to... What can I say? I just said it before. Don't play the game. I'm not really even sure... I, I don't think you actually have a question mark in here, so I'm not sure what your question is. You're just saying that people don't want to look at math the way that math works. And that's fine, I guess. Don't play a game if you don't like it. I'm just trying to point out that you're not looking at the math the way it really is. So I'm just trying to help. And if it doesn't help, we can move on. And believe me, it's about time we move on to another question, Daniel. And folks, I think that's it. Because, yep, we move on to Jen's. So hang on, we'll be right back with Jen. Okay, folks. Jen is here. We've got one more gaming question, and then we'll be done. Or, well, we'll be done with the first half of the show, and then we'll move on to personal Q and A. So, Honey Pie. Yes. Jeffrey says theme, theme, theme. I love how this top. I know this topic has probably been covered previously. You know, it was probably. Come on, man. Pick a lane. But I was hoping to get your thoughts on game topics that have not been explored, that do not include science fiction, fantasy, alternate universes, Marvel, and other comic book settings, sports, witches, wizards, anthropomorphic characters. In other words, what games do you think could be interesting that are more reality historical based? Over the years, many of the games we have acquired as a result of following your run-throughs have been just that. You know, Freedom, the Underground Railroad, Wingspan, La Havre, Mercator, Sealand, Shipyard, Dominant Species, Zulkin, London, to name a few. Yes, uh, you're right. This has been asked many times over the years, and almost without fail, Jen and I never really have a good answer. Because we're pretty happy with what's available. Yep. Um, do you have a new answer for this, honey pie? Because I don't think we've had it for a couple of years. Um, Taylor, right, here let me no. throw something out there. <laughs> So to take a a step back, Uh you know, to look at, well, what is interesting thematically as opposed to just drilling down on individual specific moments in time and whatnot. To me, I think there's largely like kind of like two broadly interesting themes. Uh, One is something that tells me something new. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a big part of really what I like about gaming. So in that regards, I'm surprised we've never seen any board games about the uh, indigenous people of australia hmm. right i mean that would be very very cool um you know you know the the colonization of australia from their perspective or you know what was their culture like before colonization happened you know i mean i know nothing about that all i know is they all just the entire country just gave them the middle finger with that stupid vote they just did. So, I mean, it'd be very, very nice to, one, learn more about their culture and their history, and two, let them know that, you know what, there is an interest in that, that they are not just second-class citizens that an entire country would give the middle finger to. Um, you know, so, stuff like that, you know, and, and not just that. I mean, you know, if any any culture or time or place, you know, but really kind of focusing on stuff we haven't seen before uh, would certainly be ideal. And, um, you know, by the same token, the other thing I think is particularly interesting is more day-to-day human experience as opposed to, you know, like cultural or societal experience. Like, I've been waiting for years for there to be a good board game about making video games because I have a more than a passing interest in that, having <laughs> done it for two decades. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was going to be... pret a porter was going to be rethemed, but it, that didn't happen. There's another one maybe coming. There's some simple little light ones. But I'm talking like a real heavy, crunchy thing that goes into all the stuff I used to do because, you know, that I, I spent years doing that and managing teams, and I would like to see that reflected. And by the same token, um, you know, you're an artist. You're, you're, you're a modern-day craftsperson. I don't think I've seen any game about a modern day craftsperson you know trying to you know be successful you know on sales through Etsy or local galleries and splitting your time between you know training yourself how to make things with new techniques and actually making stuff and taking orders and taking custom orders but also marketing yourself and you know balance I mean that would be fascinating you know and I would imagine you'd be interested in it because it'd be a... because. I mean, or maybe you wouldn't. Would you be interested in a game like that, seeing as how you live that?
1: <laughs> um, I don't know that you could ever really... I that, No, I don't think it'd be very interesting, because <clears throat> the interesting parts are watching stuff getting made, or finding it once you discover an artist. Um, but all of the sort of background business-related stuff, I think, is boring.
0: Are you not aware of the vast majority of games we play are all about that business stuff? I mean... For the I mean really we play what people generally refer to as euro games yeah. you know you know which we're completely surrounded by yeah. almost without exception they're all economic simulations. That, I mean this occurred to me is years ago Tom had me come on his channel Dice Tower to do a top 10 economic games and at the time we just said right okay games about making money but that's not what economics is. Economics is just about the flow of goods and services. It is about you know managing scarcity. It's about making things and um, you know distributing things. And that's 99% of what we play. Uh, so, I don't know. I guess you're too close to it. But yeah, I think a game all about the economics of being an independent craftsperson would be fascinating. I mean, as interesting as the economics of a uh, middle manager at a car company... Or a, uh, the head of a Renaissance-era family trying to exert influence in Florence. I mean, th- these are all just der- various shapes of you know economic, I've got goods, I'm trying to move them from one place to another, I'm trying to convert them from one thing to another. Mm. And I would think your life would translate to that. I think you have only so much time in the day. Um, yeah, I mean, fresco! Fresco was about the day-to-day life of Michelangelo and how he divides his time and how early he gets up in the morning and all that stuff. So I think broadly, those are the two ways, although Jen surprised me by saying, nope, I'm not interested in that. I think my life is pretty boring and doesn't make for a good game.
1: (laughs) There's a lot of what I consider boring that I have to do.
0: Yeah, but again, translate into a game, that's what we play all the time. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, Daisy is on Jen's lap, so she's not really paying attention.
1: I'm totally paying
0: Totally paying attention. Uh, so, but to me, broadly, those are the two topics that I would find particularly interesting. I, I've got nothing against crawling through dungeons, you know, or fighting off alien invasions. and st- All that stuff is fine, too. But I am more interested in human stories that, you know, give me insight into... The human experience that I don't already see. So pretty much anything that does that uh, um, is going to be of interest. But you know, as for particulars, now did that that prompt you to think of anything, Honey Pie? Because yeah, well, if not, we'll move on to the personal section.
1: Actually, it did prompt me to think of something. Here we go, folks. <clears throat> um, I am reading a book called "The Future Is Faster Than You Think." All right. And uh, there is so much stuff coming our way. So much good stuff coming our way in the next ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think it would be really interesting to have a game about convergences, about how different technology, when combined with other technology, creates something totally new, nobody thought about it before, and yet it's going to be this amazing thing that changes everybody's lives. So in a game, you know, that would be mixing A with B, get um, W,
0: Mm -hmm. as opposed
1: to C, or something like that. So yeah, I think that would be kind of interesting. There have
0: been games like that, but they're inevitably set in Renaissance era, because, and I think I think you see so many games set really in medieval and Renaissance era settings because it's so simple yeah you know I mean but I mean the these fundamental drives of hey you know sell a good a to person B to receive good C to send a group you know I mean Obviously, things were not as simple back then. I'm sure there were complex interdependencies with logistics and all that, just like there are today. But it's easy for us to think about the Renaissance era as, oh yeah, that was just about moving money around or exerting influence and whatnot. And so it's really easy to simplify and streamline and abstract it down into a game where, oh, this all kind of makes thematic sense. And it just, you know, I mean, we just keep seeing these over and over again. And you're right. We tend to see either stuff set in the past, stuff set in the present, Or stuff set in the far future. Far future, yeah. We never, for good or bad, we never seem to see. What about 30 years from now? What's happening in 30 years? You know, as you said, you know, with these different convergence of technologies and whatnot. And you know, by the same time, and what impact does that have on people? You know, society as a whole. We see lots of games that talk about the impact of technology on society 300 years ago, but how about 30 years from now? That would be amazing. You know, especially when they could actually take a look at the positive stuff because throughout all of pop culture these days, and this includes board games, there is a tendency more and more and more, it seems to me, undeservedly so, towards nihilism. Yep. And, you know, everything's screwed, everything's ruined, yep. you know, never mind the fact that, you know, as bad as things are now, almost without exception, everything was worse 50 years ago. Yep. Almost across the board. You know, the worst stuff that happens on a day-to-day basis, all this stuff was happening a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, fifty years ago. You just didn't hear about it. We're a much more informed society now, although we still like to bury our heads in the sands about things. Sorry, we're getting into the personal section now. But yeah, I, I think that would be really fascinating. In fact, yes. I would put that at the top of my list. I want to hear about what is the shape of human society 30 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now. Not in a Mad Max post-apocalypse future, nor in a Star Trek post-scarcity future. So that would be very cool. Yep. Good suggestion. And uh, that's it, folks. Thank you, Jeffrey, for the question. Thanks, everybody else, for the questions. And uh, we'll be back again soon. But if you hang on now, we'll be to the personal Q&A right after this. All righty, folks. Personal questions and answers time. Here we go. Uh, First of all, Joseph says, In a previous episode, I asked both of you about your favorite foreign language programs. You picked many great programs, including Squid Game. Jen hasn't seen it, but yes. Uh, I'd like to make a recommendation for another Korean show, The Extraordinary Attorney Woo. The main character has autism and is incredibly gifted with recalling and applying legal principles to many situations. The show is charming, funny, warm, and actually touches upon many social issues within Korean society. If you're looking for something cute and heartwarming, check this out.
1: I love heartwarming!
0: I want to see a game out of that! There's another great (laughs) subject. Uh, You know, I don't know anything about modern Korean society. Why are there no games that actually clue me in on that? But, hey, I'll take a TV show about it, too. Thank you, Joseph. That sounds fantastic. Yay! That will definitely go on the list. Um... Alrighty, uh, Joseph's Question number two. In the spirit of Halloween, in your upcoming RV trip, what was the spookiest or <laughs> scariest moment from your last RV adventure? Oh gosh. I mean, I know, I know what the answer is. Uh, <laughs> but I'll defer uh, would, to you.
1: Would that be when we turned onto that uh, forest road and it was not in any way, shape, or form paved? That that last one before we got to. Oh the- no,
0: they're, they're talking about the one back in February. Oh. I mean, most people don't know. We, we took a very brief, like, three-day adventure a couple of weeks ago.
1: Yeah, just to but, get our RV legs back Yeah, before we go
0: for the big trip. Yeah, do a shakedown cruise and all that yep. uh, since we... The, you know the thing been sitting there for six months, not moving at all. Okay. But no, this is you know on the trip. You know back in what was it? January, February, March. Yep. What was the scariest, spookiest moment?
1: Spooky. Well, I think definitely when we woke up in near Brothers, Oregon, and we were in the middle of a blizzard, and our batteries weren't we're starting the vehicle, and
0: <laughs> yep. everything. that was scary. That, that was, was genuinely scary.
1: Yep. And there's no one around.
0: Yeah, and we had no cell service.
1: Oh, I don't remember that.
0: No, we did not. I mean, maybe you didn't realize it, but that was one of the first things I checked. Oh, and yeah we, yeah, we were in a dead zone, so we couldn't make a phone call. We uh you know to have somebody come and pick us up. I mean, it was sub freezing. Yep. The engine would not start. All the house batteries are dead. The engine battery is dead. It was freaking terrifying. And you know we had spent the night at that uh, rest stop, and when we parked. There was another RV there, we're like, yeah. oh, okay, that was kind of a reassuring thing. But the next morning, they had long gone. <laughs> they had,
1: they had, they had gone
0: away before we had woken up, and we thought, wow, are we going to freeze to death here? Which, I mean, because what could we do? We couldn't call. I mean, apparently, you didn't get to the point where you're thinking about well, maybe we should call for a tow truck because we couldn't. And I mean, yeah, what, what were we going to do? Walk five miles? Um, well, there
1: was nothing within five. I know there. Yeah,
0: it was like twenty miles away till the next thing, yeah. or, and, and there was nothing. And somebody
1: would have come along. Would they? Yeah, I'm sure. Plows or something or something.
0: I suppose. But yes, that was scary. But it's certainly not spooky. And I was thinking of something else. It's kind of similar. I'm surprised you're not remembering this.
1: (laughs) Maybe I blocked it out because it was sinister and spooky. Um,
0: After a long drive at night. I'm starting the sentence and seeing if she'll putting an ellipse there.
1: When we got to the...
0: That little lake.
1: Yeah, that little lake.
0: Yeah. I mean that I thought was genuinely the most unsettling moment of the entire trip, because that was only the second time we had tried boondocking. Yeah. The first time was, you know, at that place where there was where we ended up almost freezing to death. <laughs> um, but the second time we had spent, we were we had driven way too long. Yeah, it was we hadn't a gotten long as, day. Yeah, we hadn't gotten as far as we wanted. But it
1: was because of was snowing. God, we just wanted to get out of the snow. Right. Yeah, we, we and completely the cold.
0: changed our path to go yeah. a different way that was yep. not the original plan. And then that ended up going way long. And we were eventually okay. We have to stop driving because it's, you know, eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, it's and we can't see pitch anything. Black. Turns out uh, the RV headlights were terrible. We have since had them replaced, but they were useless. Yeah. Um, couldn't hardly see more than 20 feet in front of the RV because they were like 20 year old headlights. Yeah. Um, and anyway, I had found, well, the, you know, this is, you know, this little place for boondocking. For folks who don't know, boondocking is basically just living off the land in your RV, you know, publicly. You know, public lands that it's legal for anybody to just park and stay. You know, sometimes there's limits. You can only stay for a couple of weeks. Sometimes you can stay there for the rest of your life. Sometimes you need permits, sometimes not. But that's generally called boondocking. Yep. Where you're totally off-road, off off-land, off-grid. And I found this one place, and we're like, "Well, we can't go any further." We had to go through this town to get there, and the town did have a couple of RV places, but they or RV parks, but they were crazy expensive. Mm-hmm. And we're like, "Okay, well, we don't want to pay eighty bucks a night to stay at these places, so let's just go outside of town." It's nine o'clock at night; we can barely see, and we pull up there, and we're there all by ourselves, and we were both really freaked out.
1: Yeah, because we really we...
0: hadn't done this before.
1: Yeah, and it was. There was a road nearby, but you just, you know, you just kind of feel a little. We exposed. were
0: off the beaten road. Yes, we were. Uh, I don't know, f- you know, 500 feet away from like a main thoroughfare. But when we got there and we pulled off to the side, and there's this little like fishing pond lake. Yeah. And it's just kind of like this. I mean, nobody from the road could see us. Nobody in the universe would know we were there. Um, you know, not it's not like drives driving by. You know, and so and we were just like, wow, and it's pitch black. We don't know where we are. There's <laughs> nobody else here, and this is really uncomfortable. It was, it was made me realize that, you know, the previous time we'd done it, how comforting it was to see, oh, look, here's somebody else doing this. Yes. You know, they could have been serial killers for all we knew, but it still was more comforting to see that there was somebody else in an RV. <laughs> we where, had a neighbor. Or you know, this time we were completely alone. Yes. And, um, and that was really disconcerting, I think. Yes. And, you know, we made it through the night and it was well, all totally no, fine. you're not
1: remembering. We actually were calling the RV... Um,
0: oh, that's right. I forgot.
1: And checking to see if they had space. And... Because
0: the heck with it. Let's pay. Let's just not stay yeah, out here in the middle we, of nowhere.
1: We, we probably were there for half an hour or something, and we just didn't feel comfortable. Yeah,
0: we took the dogs for a walk, and it's just like there's just no light. Everything is just pitch blackness. It's like we're in a primitive... um yeah you know, wasteland. Yeah. And if, you know, if something happened to us, nobody would ever know. And <laughs> Even
1: though we were only like 500 feet from a road. I mean, yeah,
0: exactly. It was still... it was, With it was,
1: hindsight, you know, but it, we were tired and it was late. And, and it
0: was dark and we didn't, we'd yeah. not really done this before.
1: Right. So you were actually on the phone
0: Saying, with one yeah. of the
1: camping places mm-hmm. and somebody pulled up.
0: Oh, that's right. Yes. Remember? A yep. single woman um, in a little van and, uh, you know, she pulled up and just parked and it was just over there. We we're like, oh, just instantly feels so much better yep. with another human being and there, and I'm
1: sure she felt the same about us.
0: Yeah, and she might not have stopped if we weren't there. Yep. And I don't even think we, you know, we didn't talk to her at all.
1: We talked to her in the morning.
0: Yeah. The next, but th- that night we we're like, okay, I, th- I think we can feel we'll feel comfortable now. There's somebody else here. Again, they could have been Syracuse for all we know, <laughs> but that's generally not the case in the RV community. The RV community is pretty widely known for just being full of nothing but people who want to help every you know other people. Yeah. So we were because of that then able to go to sleep. And the next morning we met her. She was uh, you know, a single you know, mid-40s, mid-50s woman yep. traveling on her own. And she said, oh, I was so glad to see you here. He said, like, we were so glad to see you, because we were about to leave. And we all got a laugh out of it. And subsequently after that, we did the boondocking thing several times. Yeah. And you know in the complete absence of well no that's i was gonna say in the absence of nobody around but that's not really true right
1: yeah i mean we spent actually uh what almost two weeks i think at the valley of the gods
0: yeah which is just off-road living in the middle of nowhere
1: at, uh, it's bureau of land management yeah. blm land yes uh, beautiful but there wasn't anybody near us but there were people within sight
0: yes there were
1: within a mile we could see other campers
0: well let me ask you this if we had pulled up there and there was nobody oh. how, what would you have thought
1: that would have been a little... Again, I think it would have just felt weird. Yeah. Yeah, we're not experienced enough yet to want to be out in complete solitude.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, so anyway, I would definitely say those were... I mean, it was genuinely spooky, you know, that yeah. first time, because it was night, and it was dark, and it was creepy, and we didn't know... We couldn't see what was around us, and... True. Yeah, so I would certainly say that was probably the... Actually,
1: the next day, though, after the other the lady had left, we stayed, uh, I guess, the afternoon or Yeah, something.
0: we stayed, like, <laughs> most of the day, yeah.
1: Um... But remember the guy, the fisheries guy, came oh, and yeah, stocked yeah. the pond with mm-hmm. fish. Yeah. He had a he had a big tank on the back of his truck, and he put a little slide out, and he just swooshed a bunch of fish into that lake. Yeah, like like just flushed them in.
0: Yep, that it was, was amazing. Yep. It was cool. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, there you go. That was our spooky, scary moment. Uh, I guess you know when we were in Vegas. Oh, yeah. We was... spent basically a week in Vegas at the Dive Star West Convention Library. And while... Not the fu- or, uh, Convention. While they offered us a room in the hotel, we thought, oh, we can't take that because the hotel won't allow dogs. So we'll just stay out in the RV in the, uh, in the uh, parking lot, lot for... What was it? Is it the Rio? Yeah. It, uh, for the Rio uh, Hotel in Vegas. And we were... That was very uncomfortable. Yeah, please. there were creepy people walking around at night and stuff like that. Yeah. At one point, people were just like leaning up against the RV and chatting and doing who knows what. Yeah. So we had a few things like that as well.
1: Yeah, that was creepy. Yep. All right.
0: Anyway, thanks for reminding us. Uh, <laughs> we're moving on to Jeffrey, who says for your upcoming RV adventure. No. Oh. What are you mostly excited about, and what do you look forward to the most? Conversely, what worries you, and what are you most concerned about? How long do you plan to be gone, and what destinations will you see that you've never seen before?
1: Goodness me, that's a lot of questions. All right,
0: well, Jen's done most of the planning, so I will defer to her.
1: Okay, well, I'm mostly excited about just having a complete break from our normal lives and doing things um, that we wouldn't normally be doing. I mean, it's just nice to to have a break, I think. Mm -hmm. also, we lived in Malta across from the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, for six years. And I think I've really missed being near the sea. So I'm excited that we're going to be spending some time near um, the Sea of Cortez and the Pacific Ocean. So okay. I think that's it. Um, I've decided I don't worry about anything anymore because anything I ever worry about never comes to pass. Yeah. And all the stuff that does come to pass, I, I never would have thought of
0: it. You had no idea it was coming. Yeah. Nope. So there's just no reason to worry.
1: There's no reason to worry. Yes,
0: that was certainly a big takeaway from the last long trip. Because you would always be worried about X, Y, or Z. And i am like, honey, no, you don't have to worry about that. That's not even going to remotely happen. And you're like, oh, yep, that didn't bother us at all. <laughs> this other thing just completely ruined our plans. And we couldn't have known about it in a million years. Yep. But almost without exception.
1: Yep. Um, we're going to be gone, well, several months anyway. I'm not sure exactly. Well, we're, part of it is, um, it's the that's nice about the RV is that we're flexible. And mm-hmm. we can come and go and who knows? So a couple months anyway. Yep. Um, and we're going to go down the we're west basically, coast.
0: Basically, we, we live in Washington State. We're driving down through Oregon all the way to the southern tip of California and then continuing south to the southern tip of the Baja Peninsula in Mexico and then coming back up. Yep. And probably coming back up through Arizona so we can swing by Dan King, the Game Boy Geek, and hang out with him. Yep. Because he is all of a sudden Jen's favorite person in the world after <laughs> visiting him the first time.
1: Oh, he's such a nice person. Oh, yeah, I like he, him.
0: Yeah, he's really great. We had a great time visiting him last time on the road. And then coming up, we don't even know how. Maybe going back up through uh, Nevada. Go... Maybe going up through Salt Lake.
1: No, I, well, I want to go up the west coast, west western side of Utah this time. Because we went up oh. the eastern side of Utah
0: Oh, apparently there are more plans than I knew. There are
1: loads of plans.
0: All right. So that's what we're doing. Uh, We're leaving at the end of October. We're currently planning to get back sometime in March. Uh, But we'll see. We might get back sooner. We might get back later. That's the whole point. Question two. What are two of your most treasured childhood memories? Two.
1: Well, one of them I'm going to say definitely pops up Um, when I got my molars taken out when I was, I don't know, 17 or something. Oh, okay. My dad took the day off, and he took care of me. And I can just remember the feeling of um, just so being cared for that day. Um, probably a couple days, I, I, I'm i sure it was. But, um, yeah, I just really, I always think of that as one of those really just encompassing, wonderful, safe, lovely, um, cared for moments okay. in my life. And That's a good one. Yeah. Um, And then I guess another one would be, uh, I can remember when we got our horse. When I was young, I was like eight years old, mom and dad bought us a horse. Okay. And so I can remember, I don't know if it was the first time we rode her. It must have been, you know, within the first couple of times we rode her anyway. Um, And uh, it was just wonderful. I just, I remember feeling like the luckiest girl in the world. You were. I was.
0: (laughs) How many girls get horses? I know. I know.
1: Absolutely. So... Um, yeah, she was a really great horse. We had her for, oh my gosh, I think we got her when she was three. And then um, after I'd been gone to college a couple of years, dad decided to um, sell her to uh, to another family that had a, a young girl. Mm. And so she was a great horse and um, then she was a great horse for another little girl.
0: That's nice. Yeah. Uh, that's two. I'm trying to think of any, you know. <laughs> Honestly, I I remember very little of my childhood. Most of what I remember of my childhood is me remembering people telling me things happened. Uh, I don't have a visual memory or a visual imagination. Uh, When I think of things, I can't picture. I do not have a mind's eye, and so I think that kind of applies to my recollection too. I mean, I don't remember what childhood friends. I remember. I remember I had childhood friends. I remember Clem and Warren were two of their names when we lived in Knights Landing. But I think Warren had red hair. But I couldn't tell you much about them. Remember Clem, or Clement, short for Clemente, was very short. Uh, so it's hard for me to remember. But one thing, it's stupid, but I remember, I don't know what year it was for my birthday. Actually, I can look up what year it was. Hold on a second. Uh, let's go over to the browser and let's go to the Internet Movie Database, Flash <laughs> Gordon. Oh. 1980. Um, so that would mean I was 11. On my 11th birthday, my parents dropped me and my little brother, who was, I think, three years younger than me, off at the uh, movie theater to watch Flash Gordon by ourselves. Ooh. And that was like a really big moment for me. Yeah, you, know, uh, you know, they trusted us. You know, we were completely on our own. And, and you know, it's not that big a deal because I, I, I do know growing up in the 70s, we were always off doing things by ourselves. Yep. Uh, you know, unlike, you know, kids of today. So it's not that outside the... Uh, but I don't think we had ever gone to a movie theater. I mean, yeah, we grew up in Knight's Land in California. We were all over, you know, you know, running in the levees and doing all kinds of stuff. But it felt very grown up. I remember thinking that was really awesome. And so I'll always have a soft spot in my heart for Flash Gordon. For many reasons, and that is one of them. Go Flash! Go! Go Flash! Go! Go Flash! Go! Thank <laughs> you, Dale. And, uh jeez yeah uh all right. childhood childhood I've seen pictures that seem like if I remembered them they would be uh uh you know very fond, but what do I remember I'm trying to remember i I, okay. I just remember i remember weird things i remember for at some point my family had a couple of geese. I do not know why we had geese. It must have been for eggs, I guess. And I remember those geese were such a pain in the uh, butt because they'd always break out and then we'd have to chase them all over town.
1: <laughs> and they were honking.
0: Yeah, and they were honking and they were they were huge. I mean, for a little kid, but geese is gigantic. And so that I mean, I, but that's not a cherished memory. That's just something I kind of very clearly remember being terrified of these geese that I had to go hunt down and wrangle back in back back home. What do I cherish? Ah uh, Gosh!
1: Any, any of the visits to your um, family? Your families? No, because you guys went and did. What about the um, <laughs> what about the road trips?
0: The road trips. I mean, no, that was. I mean, we did one big, epic, long road trip from one side of the continental use to the other, and it's pretty much. Two or three years later, we saw National Lampoon's Vacation, and we appreciate that movie more than anybody else who ever saw it, because almost everything that happened to the Griswolds in that movie happened to us. <laughs>
1: Do you want to talk about the uh, tire coming off? And- <laughs> oh,
0: it's if somebody wants to hear about our National Lampoon vacation, sorry. But yeah, none of, very little of that was cherished. Um, but uh, similar to your horse story, I must have been maybe seven or so, seven or eight, and so Ryan would have been five. Yeah, I think so. That would probably be about right. And my parents got us both motorcycles. I had a 100cc Yamaha. So that was like, you know, a, a small but adult sized bike. But, you know, I, I'm tall and I was tall as a kid too. And Ryan had a tiny little Suzuki that was, you know, made for little kids. And I do remember very fondly that we would go out to. There was, you know, outside of Knight's Land in California. I don't know where it was, but there was just land with lots of roads, all over the p- dirt roads that led nowhere, and lots of things that made for really good ramps and jumps and stuff. And Dad would drive us out there and say, "Okay, get on the bikes and go. You got two hours.
1: Go <laughs> break a leg.
0: Go, yeah, do whatever. We don't care. There's no phones. There's no, if we, if we crash, walk back." <laughs> um, But I remember really enjoying that. And again, you know, it's obviously all about that freedom and, you know, that responsibility and all that. And of course, it's fun driving around on a motorcycle. So I I do recall that. And really, your horse story reminded me of that. I had uh, metallic horses. Yes, you had
1: more horsepower than I did, I'm sure.
0: Yep, yep, yep. Okay, question three. EVs. We're thinking of purchasing a Tesla in the next year or so. We recently visited a friend near Vegas, and I had the opportunity to drive theirs. was very impressed. Couldn't help notice all the five-plus-gallon and uh, five uh, plus gallon gas prices mm. as I was uh, going to and from the conference. I know more and more EVs are hitting the market in an increasing number of automakers. Just wanted yours and Jen's thoughts on the evolving RV market. I read somewhere no. that Toyota <laughs> is exploring and developing an updated hydrogen fuel cell, and they may be going in that direction as well. Thoughts?
1: Oh, well, you're probably more... um,
0: You're reading the book about the future.
1: Yeah. Have they
0: not talked about cars in the
1: the book? They've talked about them being autonomous and also like flying cars. (laughs) That'll be really cool when that happens. Um, We have a Prius, so we have a hybrid and we love it. Yeah. I mean, it is amazing and I love it. I was filling up at the station the other day and I think the Prius has maybe a 10-gallon tank. It's an 8-gallon tank. (laughs) 8-gallon. So... Uh, you know, it was $4 a gallon or something at, at that moment. And so I was spending $28. Yeah. And the guy next to me, he I, had a... Ford
0: F-150 or something ridiculous.
1: Something huge. Yeah. And he was complaining about how much his gas was. And I just thought, you know, sir, I'm sorry, but you've made some choices. Yes. And now you're having some ramifications of mm-hmm,
0: that. Yeah. So... Let me guess. The truck is pristine, Right. No scuffs in the bed. No mm. mud in the tires. <laughs> it's just, a, I mean, so many of these, oh, yeah. you know, They're big monster for... SUVs and trucks are just status symbols. Yeah. They're just gas guzzlers. It's just so ridiculous. Yeah, we love that Prius. Best car we've ever had. Although, it just makes me wish we did actually have a full-on EV as well. Mm. Um,
1: I suppose. I do. I i really like that I have the option of gas. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I know I need to fill it up every so often. But we get 500 miles to the tank. This what eight ten gallon tank yeah five hundred miles yeah it's amazing mm-hmm. love yeah. it so um I so I don't really know anything about um e cars I don't know that we're ever gonna buy another car <laughs> I think if if this book that I'm reading which is the future is faster than you think it is. comes true mm-hmm. you know basically cars are gonna come they're just gonna be around and they'll pick you up and take you where you need to go that and is ultimately like gonna happen about parking them or insuring them or um. Storing them in any shape or form, they're just going to be out there doing their thing because, yeah, you know they'll be connected to the internet. And when you need a car, you just let yep. the internet know you need one, and they come and get you.
0: That is the inevitable future, yes. And
1: I love that because mm-hmm. then I can read or relax or who knows what yep. in the car instead of driving.
0: Yep. Um, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned Toyota with hi- hydrogen fuel. I just saw a video the other day. Toyota is also developing an ammonia. Uh, mm. Fuel tank as well because ammonia has long been recognized as oh yeah this could be an alternative but apparently its detonation point is too low but so there's technical issues but apparently Toyota is solving those and yeah I know a lot of people say ah stop with the hydrogen and you know, just pick one pick one lane and go for it and that's such a mistake you know the situation we are in in our planet is such an on fire emergency
1: we need all hands on deck all
0: hands on deck any solution you got. You know, it. whatever it is, um, you know, stop dismissing nuclear out of hand uh, because, oh, no, no, just double down and triple down on wind. And so, yeah, no, do those two double down on freaking everything.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the one of the things in the book was that we are four doublings mm-hmm. away from having solar power be able to take care of everybody, everybody in the world. Yeah.
0: No, I mean, no, I ju- the other day I believe I heard a statistic that now worldwide over thirty percent of all energy is provided by renewables. Yeah, which is amazing. Uh, it's you know it means we still got two thirds to go, but that's incredible. Um, and so yes, congratulations, good on you uh, seeking out an EV. Uh, you know, d- the the technology seems amazing, and I think you'll be very very happy. Uh, so, uh, congratulations. And I just heard phone uh, beep, so I think we have to pause yep, now. Is that correct? Pause. Yes, please. All right, we'll be back in a moment. Okay, the thing has been taken care of, whatever that was. <laughs> and moving on to the next question, which is the always fun topic of racism. Oh! I won't get too deep here. I was just wondering if you're familiar with John McWhorter and his book, Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. It's a critique of some of the foundations of social justice activism, and his interview with Andrew Yang on his podcast was rather enlightening and informative. I tend to be aligned with you and Jen's social stance as it pertains to persistent racism in our country, and by the way, racism that also targets non-African American populations, Asians, Latinos, Native Americans, Jews, Muslims... I'm always interested in hearing or reading different points of view. Curious if you've heard of him or the book. I have. I um, did listen to the uh, Yang podcast, and honestly, I'd say I was not very impressed. It was I mean, this was like a couple of years ago, right? <clears throat> I think that he was on there, or at least last year. <clears throat> and I remember thinking, I remember, I'd have to go back and watch it again. And you can watch it on YouTube, too. So, But I remember at one point, Yang was saying, you have this one section in the book that has all these completely hypocritical dichomenies that are common on the, on the far left. Let me show how extreme and ridiculous they are. And then it was like a series of, hey, um, leftists say to do this and this. And look how the two things are diametrically opposed. and It's impossible to achieve that. And I remember thinking the whole time, what are you talking about? Every single one of these things are perfectly fine and work. I mean, yes, you can do this and do that. Next one, you can do this and do that. Yes, these are not diametrically opposed at all. Never mind the fact, as I recall, several of them were straw men that were just not even remotely, um, you know, part of the discourse. They were just made up. You know, the same way that right wingers were going on for months about how kids were being you know, um were were, given, we're 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 being um allowed to pretend that they were cats and were given litter boxes in school public schools. And you know, they kept talking about this is a thing that leftists are so insane that you have to if a child identifies as a cat, you have to give them a cat litter box. And that was all garbage. That was all make believe. I've given examples of make-believe right wing propaganda nonsense that spreads like wildfire before. And uh, you know, don't get me wrong, Morton was nowhere near as bad as that. But he was in the same genre. He was in the same lane. And I got to be honest, I was super disappointed with Yang for um, not pushing back on all the stuff and saying, "Well, yeah, that's a really interesting topic." Now, to be fair, Yang has a tendency to not really push back uh, because he's all about trying to, um, you know, uh, build coalitions and whatnot. That's what got him in trouble with the far left in the first place because he would, uh, you know, entertain Dave Rubin and and uh, oh, what's uh, I can't think of. I can't, you know, he would go on right wing shows, and they would say, "Really? Well, what I really like about your stances, Andrew, are really terrible right wing talk point." And Andrew would like just kind of laugh and say, "Well, yeah, it's really interesting you uh, say that. Let me change the subject, as opposed to give full throw." And you know, but I mean, to be fair, Andrew has mentioned Wharton several times on subsequent episodes, and it's something I just disagree with him. I think he's wrong on that, quite frankly, and it was kind of disappointing. Uh, You know, and I'm not saying there probably aren't, um, you know elements of John McWhorter's book that really do unearth truths but from that particular podcast episode you're talking about I came away very much not impressed and if I had been interviewing the man I would have why are you saying these these two things are diametrically opposed they work perfectly well together there there's no pro, there's no sunlight between them you're just trying to um couch things as uh you know incompatible when they're totally fine so I've never read the book, though. I've just watched that one episode and just came away not particularly impressed because I thought they were just very hollow, facile, and often straw man arguments that he was making. Um, right. Next up, Honey Pie. We go from racism to canine cancer. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. We recently found out that one of our two beloved rescues, Kaiser, has bladder cancer. Oh. Apparently extends to his prostate and right uterus. Uh, Which has ultimately led to right kidney failure. The oncologist says chemo is unlikely to be much benefit due to the extent of the masses and because with dog cancer, unlike human cancer, the goal isn't necessarily to eradicate the tumors, but rather keep the dog as comfortable as long as possible. Radiation would be an option but traveling to eastern Washington on a regular basis is not practical with our lives at this point. With that in mind, I decided to get him started on canine CBD oil as well as omega-3s plus vitamin E and A supplements. Mm. Upon researching this further, there's apparently some investigation into deworming medications, i.e. anti-parasitics and their um, anti tumorigenic effects, both in dogs and humans. And since these meds are fairly affordable, I figured, why not? I wonder if you and Jen have ever had to deal with the issue, and if either of you have heard of any alternative therapies. Uh, Kaiser's been such a sweet and loving little boy, and the reality of losing him so soon, prognostic, uh, 6 to 18 months or so, can get pretty overwhelming at times, to be honest. Losing mm-hmm. a pet is such a devastating event, and I hope I can manage the emotional turmoil when it happens. I guess we just remind ourselves that rescuing him we did 3 years ago has been the best thing for him and he was in and out of shelter for the first 3 or 4 years of his life and he was heartwarm positive when we adopted him and so we know how rough and neglected his early years actually were.
1: Yeah. Well, again, you did an amazing thing. What's that? By adopting him.
0: Oh, oh, yes. Yes, I'm not not me. You were looking at me when you said that. Oh, uh, yeah. No, th- yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah. And you know, I mean, both of our dogs are strays. You know, in, in previous years, you know, Scuttle and Dobby, they were more, you know, out of puppy mill type situations. Well,
1: Dobby definitely was. Yeah, and, and we would
0: we would never do that again. I mean, we would always go for, you yeah. know, strays rescue and hounds and, and rescue dogs them, yeah. and whatnot. So, uh, good on you. And you're right. You have to focus on the fact that you made his life so much better. And I am betting he made your life so much better, too. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, I mean, this is terrible. But, I mean, our experience was Tula. Uh, was diagnosed with cancer, and in our case, we had no idea.
1: No, we she, thought she'd swallowed a piece of plastic. Yeah, I mean, or something she, was she was behaving, behaving
0: weirdly and... and stuff like that. And we just thought, well, okay, so we thought she had eaten something because something had disappeared or something like that. And we took her in, and you know, they anesthetized her and put her under, and we were waiting outside in the car. We were literally recording a podcast episode at the time, I remember, mm-hmm. and we got the call. And they said, uh, yeah, she has advanced stage cancer. Um, we we're thinking we should just put her down right now instead of waking her back up because she won't last long. Yeah. And we had no idea this was coming. And it just completely devastated no, us. No, and our
1: vet didn't know. We'd gone over. It was we were living in Malta. Yeah. And our vet on Gozo with the Little Island was like, I don't know. I don't feel like I can do the exploratory surgery to find out if she's eating a piece of plastic. Go mm. see this specialist yeah. guy. And the specialist guy opened her up and said, there's just so much cancer in here. Yeah. There's really... You know, there's and we nothing, had, and so nothing we, we can had, do.
0: We had to make the choice right then, not even knowing. And, you know, so we hardly, shock. we really didn't get a chance to say goodbye to her or anything. I mean, we kind yeah. of did because, you know, you sat with her on your lap for a while. and We gave her a last walk. But we just thought, oh, yeah, this is going to be unfortunate. She's going to have a recovery from this, but it's going to yeah. be fine. And then it wasn't. And she was just gone, just like that.
1: Yeah, that was very shocking.
0: Yeah, and really hard. But um, so... You get 6 to 18 months, and that's amazing. And, uh, you know, just focus on how much more wonderful times you will have with Kaiser. Yes. Uh, And I don't know. You know, I mean, so our experience, we did not have an opportunity to do any research. on What can be done about it? We just had a vet saying, you should let her go. And so we did.
1: Yeah. And she she had been having vomiting and um, diarrhea and all sorts of nasty things for a couple of months. And we just thought, well... You know, we we checked her out as as much as we could, and this was kind of well. Yeah. She's cut kind out of a piece of plastic in there or something.
0: And but you know, it's not like she was she was still eating. She was oh, she yeah, still she... had energy. Yep. She was still and um yeah and we, so we were we were so shocked. <sighs>
1: yeah, I mean she wasn't vomiting every day, but yeah, just and also looking back on photos, she got really skinny.
0: Yeah, we just you, know, you th- just don't notice true. until yeah
1: because it's gra- so gradual.
0: Yeah. So So. she was suffering, and we just didn't know it. Yeah, but she was just such a good dog. Yeah, we we didn't know. Um, Sano, have you heard anything? Or do you have any other suggestions? Which is really I I really
1: don't have any um, uh, insight for treatments or anything. But I I love what you're doing, and hopefully that will help.
0: Hey, why not? As you say,
1: exactly. Why not?
0: Yeah, I would certainly suggest if you haven't already change her diet his diet.
1: Away from... If you
0: you, you just do standard, you know, Safeway processed sawdust food, (laughs) um, you know, try to, you know, look into an alternate diet that is closer to his wolf ancestry, what his body was designed through millions of years of evolution to thrive on and see if you can change his diet to something closer to that.
1: Yeah. Um, You can look up... um, Barf, B-A-R-F.
0: What's that it's stand for? for?
1: Bones and raw foods. Yeah. Bones and raw foods. You can feed dogs raw bones. You can't feed them the cooked bones because they could shatter and um, splinter and yeah. be bad. But and they did not
0: evolve bones. to eat. They did not evolve to eat um, cooked bones. They evolved eating raw bones.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yep. So um, you know that might be something. Chicken necks and turkey necks are really easy for them to eat. There aren't any big, you know, long, pokey things. The the vertebrae are all nice and kind of rounded and everything. Yep. Um And there's lots of good spinal fluid and stuff like that in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that might be a way you could. But you don't cook it. You just give it to them raw.
0: Yeah. And they love it.
1: And they love it.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Because they're eating the way they're supposed to. Yep. Instead and of all the processed food we give them. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, that, yeah, that's a very good point. I would suggest trying to switch over to that.
0: I'm not saying it'll help, but, you know, it's, it's a homeopathic approach. But, I mean, to me, it just makes sense. Hey, what should we put on our bodies? How about the, as close as we can, mimic what we were evolved over millions of years to thrive on? You know, I mean, wherever yeah. possible. Yep. As opposed to what we eat now, which is far and away, nothing like what we yeah. have evolved to thrive on. Yep.
1: And and if you can't do raw meaty bones or um... it's
0: not cheap. I mean, well, the what we've found the best way to do that is if there's a butcher shop relatively close mm. to you, you will they will find we have no one what to do with all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And you, I mean, so you know, there are places you can go where you can get it, like you know, big boxes of it is cheap, almost as cheap as cheap. Safeway dog food, but it is still more expensive. Definitely.
1: Yeah. And there's the thing of handling raw meat and everything, but, um, it is good. Um, if you, so I was going to say, if you can't do that, at least try for a grain free, um, Mm -hmm. you know, dog food, uh, because I think the grains dogs are not, (laughs) they're just not evolved to eat grains and we feed them a lot of corn and wheat and, uh, meal products, byproducts of, agriculture and they're just not that's not it's not a thing for dogs so anyway that's what i would suggest and thank you for reminding remembering about the dietary stuff of yeah. course we are what we eat
0: yeah yeah literally
1: it's to- that's what we're made of so mm-hmm. you know that could possibly help
0: so give kaiser uh, you know the best shot he's got by giving him what his body really really wants after literally millions of years of evolution as opposed to what we give them now you maybe you're already doing that i mean yeah anyway though um Let's see.
1: And, and we're sorry.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, yeah. You know, we've been there several times. And we know we will be again, but it's worth it. Yep. Alrighty, righty says a star trek strange new world season seven episode season two episode seven those old scientists happened what are your thoughts and ratings of this episode best star trek episode ever first of all andrus i apologize there was more to this email where he said why do you keep ignoring my email he actually said th- he's talking about the episode where there was a crossover between strange new worlds and lower decks
1: oh i love that mm-hmm. i loved it do we need to pause
0: yeah, Folks, I'm getting uh, texts repeatedly over and over from Paulo's. There's an emergency. Hold on. A goof-checking emergency.
1: Oh, dear. I'm going to
0: pause for a sec. Right. Sorry for that interruption. Um, Andrus, again, my apologies. I have no idea how I skipped your email before. But, honey, you were just saying you loved it. You I loved say?
1: it. Oh, my gosh. It was so awesome.
0: <laughs> All right. I'm just going to ignore this. Uh, it'll continue making noise, but you folks can't even hear it. And now Daisy's barking. Oh, oh my dear. gosh. Uh, I'm just going to ignore her. Uh, is it the best episode of Star Trek ever? No, it is not. But it was certainly a great episode of Star Trek. It
1: was very, very
0: bad. Is it the best crossover episode ever? I'm not sure. The uh, Deep Space Nine Tribbles episode is just as amazing. Um, uh, you know, when the cast of Deep Space Nine ended up you know, going back to you know, the original series, and were in the background, and there was lots of cool, fun, silly stuff there, too. Uh, but it, it was absolutely awesome. This season has been fantastic. Uh, Strange New World might be the second best Star Trek series ever, and so no surprise, it's awesome when it uh, crosses over with what is by far the greatest Star Trek series ever, Lower Decks. <laughs>
1: well, I don't agree with that, but mm. I did really, really enjoy it.
0: Yep, yes. So, yeah.
1: I think Uh. we watched it twice. Yes, we did.
0: We watched it, and then we immediately watched it a second time. I don't think... I don't know if we have ever done that with a TV show before.
1: Hmm. Probably not.
0: Yeah, but anyway. uh, I guess Jen will not ignore Daisy, so she's going to go ahead, which means I have to pause again. Ah. Okay, apparently there was a car. And the car has been dealt with. Uh, anyway, again, Andres, I have to apologize because if we'd seen this, we might have a bit more to say and maybe go into the spoilers section. But the only thing I will say that I remember is, as much as I loved it, the Lower Decks uniforms do not look very good in real life. I, I thought they, they looked absolutely ridiculous. They obviously look great as cartoons, but um, they probably could have done a bit to make them look a little bit less silly in real life, kind of like... Uh, When when, when you do like really perfect recreations of Marvel superhero costumes, often they don't hold up very well uh, on (laughs) cosplayers. And I don't think these held up very well either. But otherwise, an absolutely phenomenal episode.
1: Well, they probably didn't need to spend a gazillion dollars on something that was only going to be used for one episode.
0: Uh, Good point. Daniel says, I was going to ask several questions, but realize it boils down to this. All uh, right. This is a continuation. Uh, how certain that everything your side, me being a leftist, believes is almost 100% true. My God, Paulo, let it go. Um, right. Uh, I was right, right. How certain that everything your side believes is almost 100% true and morally correct and everything that is said to counter arguments 100% right wing lies in misinformation. Um, and here comes Gertrude <laughs> because Jen did not shut the door. <laughs> All right, uh, this one's not for you anyway, Honey Pie. If you'd like to escort Gert out of here, that would be great. If you would like to take my phone away from me because it will not stop beeping, that would be great. Um, Daniel, uh, no, not 100%. My side says stupid stuff all the time. Right? Uh, Nowhere near as much as the right, but because there's a fundamental difference, uh, Daniel, uh, when it talks about misinformation and exaggerations and um, ad hominems and all that. Here's the deal. The vast majority of reputable sources of information on my side, you know, the adults in the room, you know, I'm talking about Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or AOC or Rachel Maddow or, you know, basically liberal-leaning, left-leaning sources of information are, generally speaking, 100% 100% true and morally correct. Uh, I almost cross the board. If you have examples where AOC has uh, spread blatant, obvious disinformation, I'd love to hear about it because it doesn't exist. Same thing for Elizabeth Warren, etc., etc. But there are plenty of folks on my side of the fence, mostly on social media, which, Daniel, as you know, I have said many times, get off of Twitter, it's a waste of everyone's time the only good use for Facebook is family photos of the new baby and and pets they've got that's it it's useful for absolutely nothing else stick to you know Associated Press stick to the Guardian um, you know etc cetera, etc cetera, if you're actually wanting to get news and certainly um, yes there are plenty of far-out, ridiculous statements made by individuals who are left-leaning. And you know what? That doesn't matter. Now, let's contrast and compare that to the right side of the fence, where the trusted sources of information, the equivalent adults in the room, you know, Republican senators and congresspeople and um, pundits, will say hot garbage 24 hours a day, 7 days a week they will spread the lies that children are being indoctrinated to say that, yeah, it's okay if you want to identify as a cat and we'll give you kitty litter. I mentioned this example earlier. That's, sure, that's coming from the individuals, the far right wing, the the individuals who will say all kinds of crazy stuff, QAnon conspiracy garbage, and all that truly dangerous stuff. But I'm ignoring that because, again, that's social media garbage, and it exists on both sides. I'll give you that. But the adults in the room on the right side will spread those same lies and disinformation. Look what's going on in the U.S. Congress right now. It's, you know, you need to look no further than that. And that's the fundamental difference. The adults in the room on the left are actual adults who are actually... I'm not going to say 100% true and morally correct, but I'm going to say overwhelmingly so. The, um, the equivalent on the right are Marjorie Taylor. I mean, I mean there, there, there are good news sources on the right as well, but they are marginalized and pushed aside because they're not getting the clicks and the media attention. The right-wing uh, media ecosystem is nothing but lies and disinformation you know, generated to scare the base into giving them more support. This is true for right-wing politicians and right-wing pundits. By and large, that equivalent thing does not happen on the left. It, it does when you talk about social media. And again, Daniel, I'm telling you, buddy, get off of Twitter. There's nothing good there. Um, and I will grant you, yes, that there are far left leaning loonies who say stupid stuff. But individuals on Twitter don't matter. People with, um, you know, a uh, the bully pulpit they matter. And I would put the factual. Um, um, you know, I mean, don't don't take my word for it. Go to Snopes, go to any reputable fact checker, and you will see over and over and over again, the vast majority of lies that are spread come from the white ring. The ones that are on the left wing are generally almost never lies. They might be, um, selective interpretations of the truth or incomplete truths because they, uh, ignore in, you know, inconvenient elements. But no, it's not, it's night and day different, buddy. And, um, yeah. Anyway, though, continuing on. Number two. If you're almost 100% sure on the previous question, I don't think I was. Uh, But anyway, let's continue. What is the statistical probability of being correct, uh, of that being correct in your opinion? Uh, Am I saying that the adults in the room on the left, generally speaking, uh, do not spread lies and misinformation? I'm giving that a very high level of statistical probability. Yes. Uh, hundred percent. No, nothing in life is hundred percent, but yes, very high. And if you're not, what are some of the things you disagree with your site? I, I just gave you one like five minutes ago in this podcast. Although it was like in two hours ago with all the pauses we've been having. Um, Andrew Yang, I love his core policies. I'm very strongly aligned with him. He totally blew it on McWhorter. Um, as an example. And yeah, there are plenty of times I have seen Elizabeth Warren say things I disagree with. I have certainly seen Bernie say things I disagree with. Uh, I can't tell you off the top of my head because, uh, but I mean, it definitely happens. I did give you one example, uh, so, I'm, and I'm sure there are plenty more. If you'd like to bring specific examples, I will explain how, whether I agree or disagree. If you've got You know examples of egregious lies that are spread by again, the the thought leaders of the left. You know. uh, So anyway, if you mentioned Google X, I did not. But it will continue in any of my previous questions. What are the chances that all the people who disagree with something on your side haven't Googled anything and have been indoctrinated without doing much research whatsoever. All of them? Zero. It is zero percent. There are no perfect black and whites of anything. Nothing is 100% and zero percent. That is fundamentally not how the world works. But the majority of Trump voters? Yes, the majority of Trump voters have been indoctrinated and they have been siloed, and they get all their information from those wildly irresponsible sources, Uh, which is to say there are elected officials who lie to them all day long, to Fox and worse, OAN and other networks. These are full wall-to-wall of lies, not mistruths, not stretches, blatant, repeated lies. And when their lies are called out, they just ignore that and move on to the next lie because they know that their viewers will never go anywhere else. And never... And, you know, because... Because... The most damaging thing that uh, Donald Trump has done is normalize the idea of fake news and instilled in his followers a fundamental distrust of uh, you know the pillars of a free society. And yeah, and because of that. I mean, the number of times I have seen Trump voters confronted. I mean, I think I talked about this last time, didn't I? The 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 couple of young girls in their twenties who say, "Oh my gosh, yeah, Trump." I mean, everybody lies about him, and um, and then the question, well, you know, if if somebody said this, would you believe it? And no, Trump would never do that. Uh, and what do you think about Ivanka? Oh, she's great, she's awesome. And then they show Ivanka saying the thing, and then they just stare at it, and they just have cognitive dissonance. They don't know what to do. And they decide, well, oh, my entire worldview has been shattered by simple, easy to prove, cold hard facts that they've never been exposed to, and they just change the subject. And I've seen that so many times; it's 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 amazing. And so, and that is because they have been fed a nonstop diet, and this is not just a recent thing. This is going back to Rush Limbaugh, um, you know, and and you know, and all of that. This is going back to, uh, you know, at, at the very, I mean, I mean of course, misinformation has always been, uh, you know, a part of the news ecosystem, but it's not like it's just started in the era of Trump. This has basically been a long time building on the right. The left, we're doing our best to keep the lights on, be the responsible ones that actually get our bills paid on time and doesn't shut down the government to basically get more clicks on Twitter. And the right, Every couple of weeks, they're trying to shut down the government to get more clicks on Twitter. Um, you know, Trump is saying um, you know, uh, military personnel are chumps and idiots and suckers. And you know, they just completely ignore it. It's not too long before they are saying, oh, that's just all fake. That's AI created. Because, because it's easier for them to do that than acknowledge that they have literally been lied to their entire life by an industry founded on lies. That is something I will speak to you with a hundred percent assurance. And if you ever want to give me specific examples, I guarantee you, without exception, every time, it will take all of 30 seconds to disprove the lies. So keep bringing them, buddy. I'm waiting for them. And then we get to dog pictures. Jen has not come back, so I will let her know. All right. Jen has returned. Um, But before we get to dogs... All right, have you got your...
1: I'm looking for something.
0: Ah, Jen has had two hours now. I've been saying, Honey Pie, we need words of wisdom because Henrik demands it. <laughs> Even though he's too lazy to send in the email reminding us, he wants us to do all the work. All right, so we're going to have to pause <laughs> yet again. Oh. Okay, folks, it's a quick one. It's an easy one. <laughs> um, what, what are your words of wisdom, Hey Pie?
1: Ah, uh, they're not really the mine. They're Nelson Mandela's, but I never lose. I either win or learn.
0: I agree. Well done, Nelson. Okay, and now, as a reward for those words of wisdom, Jen gets dogs. It's from Jeffrey. I've included one of Betsy because I uh, don't want to leave her out, but I'm including a few of Kaiser. We'll keep you posted on how he's doing from time to time. So you remember Betsy. Of course I do. Practically a cartoon dog (laughs) with that uh, Groucho Marx eyebrow. And then here's Kaiser. Yes. Yep, yep, yep.
1: I see Kaiser's got some nice, comfortable places to lay down by the fire. Yep, And
0: some good views.
1: Yep, some good views.
0: Yep, I'm sure Kaiser is in very good hands, Jeffrey. Uh, And that's it, folks. We are done um, with another episode. (coughs) And uh, we'll be back again next month. But as always, thank you for sending in the questions. And uh, you can bring more to questions at rotto.com or question at rotto.com. Both work. And uh, otherwise, thanks for watching and or listening depending on where you got this. Have a nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. Bye.